Hey everybody, welcome to Muscle Intelligence Podcast. This is Ben Picolsi sitting in London, England with my great friend Phil Ernie. Phil, I'm very grateful for you being here. Thank you for having me. So we met a long time ago, man, and your um, pursuit, your relentless pursuit of education was always fascinating to me and you're a constant student of the game and you've turned that into uh, an incredible business helping personal trainers um, with the knowledge and skill set to ultimately build the business, uh, achieve amazing results, and... Um, ultimately understand this this convoluted, complicated process of body transformation, follow that up with the ability to build business, market, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything that goes into building an amazing personal training business. Sound about like a good synopsis? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> How did that begin for you, man? So I know like, so when you and I met, all I remember is you sitting at the table. Why did we meet that? Eat, eat, you pee. Eat, eating every two hours, a ludicrous amount of food, like you're, you're <laughs> relentlessly pursuing building muscle and reading textbooks. And that was fascinating to me because I was the only other guy that I knew that did that. And I was like, oh, I like this guy. We're going to get along really well. Um, yeah. And then it turned into um, you one day saying, hey, man, I'm going to start this online um, trainer resource. And then it seemed like almost overnight, it just popped up and it was such an amazing resource. And you, um, from the outside perspective did it so quickly yet so well. Uh, it seemed like you were working 24 hours a day. Yeah, um, it was it something was, like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it probably yeah, it was. was. Yeah. You did a hell of a job, man. So tell me how it began for you. Why, why this passion to help personal trainers? Cause you're obviously an amazing coach yourself. I don't, I don't think you still are, but um, why this desire to help? Well, I think, it, you know, I started as PT to, with the intent of helping people with, you know, almost mimicking the journey that I took. You know, I started training because of insecurities, because of uh, a desire to look better, to feel better, to perform better, to have a better outlook on things. I think, you know, I was talking about this yesterday to, to some friends and what the gym did for me was change my outlook on a lot of things. It wasn't just about training. It wasn't just about getting better shape or whatever it might be. It just changed my mentality, my approach to things and things that I thought I couldn't do before I'd actually approach in a, in a manner where I'd be like, yeah, I can do that. You know, I can achieve that and accomplish that. And I wanted to then convey that to other people. So going back a long, long, long time ago, it was when it came to career choice, I was I was very, uh, you know, I was into practical things. I was, you know, I did art, I did design, I did PE, I did, you know, my sister was very heavy, heavily academic and I wasn't really into that. We were chatting about this just en route to here. And... I decided, right, I'm either going to go down the design route, which is sort of what I wanted to do, or I'm going to go and do something to do with physical activity. And being a professional athlete wasn't really an option. I was I was good at some things, but I was, you know, I was realistic. Yeah. I was like, look, and it wasn't a negative thing. It was just the fact that the acceptance that I probably wasn't big enough and I probably wasn't fast and enough. And you worked it. really hard. And it was, and you, you know, made a lot of your genetics. And, yeah, yeah. And it, but, it, but it was never going to be groundbreaking. Right. And I, I accepted that very early. And I was like, right, so... What am I going to do? So I decided I was going to be a coach. So to be a fitness instructor, which as it was at the time. And I remember dad saying to me, he goes, but why is that? You know, what kind of living and career are you ever going to make out of that? And I always remember that conversation I had with him. And that then turned into personal training where I started as a fitness instructor. They didn't do personal training. So I had to propose it to them. I put it to them. I said, look, people want to train with me. How about presenting this? And, and as I said, this was a long time ago. This was up north. Personal training wasn't a thing. People hadn't heard of it. It wasn't an offering in all the gyms or whatever it might be. People went to a gym to train and then they left and that was it. So what it, was a fitness instructor? What's it? A fitness instructor it was so in the UK we have the level two, which is the fitness instructor certification now. So when you're a fitness instructor, essentially you can 
write Teaching programs. Like class. Yeah, yeah, but you can also you can write programs for people in the gym for them to then go away and do themselves. Got it. So you're not doing the one-on-one stuff. You're not at the level where you can get insured to actually coach someone you know, face-to-face. So they have the level two and then the level three, which is the PT. And obviously that's changed over the years as I've been, you know, I've been in the industry a long time. And it came from that point of, I want to help my clients. So it started as coaching, it went into PT. I had this diverse sort of range of clients along the way. I dealt with professional athletes, I dealt with actors, actresses, I dealt with body transformations, I dealt with people who had injuries, things like this. And it all developed from that wanting to help people and wanting to, 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 to move them down the avenue of where I was. And some of my greatest transformations are nothing to do with the physical. They are to do with the mental, they're to do Completely. with the approach that, you know, these people have changed and they are more positive about life, they're more positive about... Uh, sure. it sounds Where the mind che- goes, the yeah, body will follow. It man. sounds cheesy and tacky, no. but they're my best transformations. Or people with injuries, sure. like debilitating injuries. I remember a guy that I dealt with who, you know, the first session we did some assessments, he had a double hip replacement, he had a double knee replacement, and he literally could not lift his foot, you know, two inches onto this step. And by the time we were finished, he was, you know, he was leg pressing, he was squatting, he was, you know, and it was phenomenal. We got in this range of movement back, which there was no guarantee we were going to, but we did. And it was a major thing, but it's not, it wasn't quantifiable. So it all came from that desire to help people. And then as I progressed and got better as a coach, the problem was, is that I didn't lose clients. So my retention of clients got good, which is what you work on, you know, throughout your entire career is that you want to retain clients and... The problem was I retained clients for years and years and years sure. and years. So it got to the point where the, the reality was is that beyond my work outside of the gym, which was I was on online forums. I used to jump on all the bodybuilding forums in the UK and used to contribute and put stuff in there. And and I never got paid for any of that. There was never a, a marketing angle. There was never a, you know, and this was pre-social media almost. And there was never a marketing angle. And there was never something I could sell to these people because ultimately people would message me, go, do you do personal training? I'd be like, yeah, but I'm full. Sorry. And that was it. So the reality sort of kicked in later in my career that I'm only really dealing with about a dozen people a week, which means I can only help a dozen people. And if this continues the way it is, and when I retired from personal training, my shortest serving client was six years. Wow. You know, so, you know, I'd done a couple of little projects throughout along the way. I did a couple of actors, actresses for little short term transformations and things like this, but, and a couple of bodybuilders for shows. And, but for the most part, my, my consistent clients, my shortest serving client was six years. So I'm like, I can't help any more people. So what was it about that, about you that made you different? So if, you know, most trainers are going to retain someone for a few months, maybe often a few weeks and having a hard time getting retention. What was it about you in your eyes that made you different? I think it was the fact that I looked at what people needed from me and I delivered that in that they needed support outside of the gym. They needed that, you know, and I talk about this a lot, especially with the business side of things, is that everything is about servicing people's needs. And I always use the analogy of hotels, right? You know, you you travel a lot, right? And a lot of the time we're just paying for service. We're not paying for amenities. We're not paying for, you know, a plane is a plane. You know, a seat is a seat. A hotel is a hotel. A five-star hotel is a five-star hotel. It has a swimming pool, it has a spa, it has whatever it might be. But ultimately, you're paying for the service, you're paying for the experience, you're paying for whatever, you know, and that's what I believe I delivered. I delivered an experience. I delivered an experience every single time they walked through the door. They would remember what we did and why we did it and how we did it. And and outside of that, I would manage their life. I'd manage the lifestyle. I remember 
this was a short-term gig towards the latter end of my career and I was dealing with an actor for a for a, a, a big film and it just got dropped on me by the studio and they said look we need this person to be and they gave me this timeline I'm like whoa I said this timeline is short you know and you want this to happen in this timeline I said we need to get to work immediately and this guy was a vegan and so I'm calling up all the food companies that I know that deliver none of them do full vegan menus so I'm like, oh, you know, what, what am I going to do here? So I've gone, bought all of the food, prepped the, the, the menu, gone home, cooked it all, stuck it in a, 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 a cool box that I bought, stuck it in an Addison Lee, got it shipped off to the five-star hotel he was staying at, you know, because I'm like, this needs to be on the ball. So it was stuff like that where, and that one stands out because I remember slaving over this thing. I never cooked vegan food in my life. I was like, I've got tofu all over the place and blah, blah, blah. And, and I had no idea. And then... Just this whole process of, I had this taxi came, picked it up. I even spoke to the, the chef at the restaurant, was a Michelin star chef. But I said, look, I need to eat these macros. He rang me back. He goes, he goes, I, I don't know what macros are in food. He goes, I just prepare really tasty dishes. Right. I have no concern for what these, the content is. So can you tell me what, I said, look, the easiest way for me to do this, just make it myself and send it to you. So we ended up doing that for two or three days before we could get him hooked up with a food delivery company that would, that would give him what he needed throughout this journey and that always stood out for and that was this service thing where if i had a client traveling I'd, I'd look at what was available on the plane i'd look at what was available in the hotels and if they wanted to do that and they wanted me to do that i'd find them gyms i'd find them coaches i'd find them you know whatever they needed for them to continue to and it, yeah and it was just stepping above that it was it was that experience you get from a really good five-star hotel right where they go above and beyond you ask them to do something they do it tenfold it's like wow that isn't what I expected. That's it, even more so. And this is this is the, the what I talk about in business is that if you go way over what people expect, you know, if you give them more value than they ever expected, they're gonna keep coming back. You know, it's like when you get a mistake, and we've had mistakes where people have been sent the wrong items. So, so one of the first examples of this was with my book. You know, a, a book had gone out, and. It, there was something wrong with it. It was damaged or it hadn't made it. I can't remember what the, the exact story was, but it was appeasing that customer in a way that, you know, I, I, we sent them a T-shirt and I sent them a signed book and I, and and all of a sudden they're going to remember that transaction for the right reasons, sure. not for the wrong reasons, which they would have remembered it as a bad experience. And I talk about this a lot in that people only remember bad experiences or really good experiences. The stuff that's what they expect. And this is the problem with personal training. People go... They have a personal training session and it's exactly what they expect. And that's it. Which if when you're in an industry that relies heavily on word of mouth, that's not good enough because there's going to be no word of mouth. Right. It's like a Tony Robbins con uh, seminar, right? So you go there it's like every other seminar until you go walk on fire or walk on coals, right? And yeah. Like, oh, now this is an experience it's rather or something like completely it's jumping up and down right. like a rock concert, right? Yeah, That's, yeah, yeah. Rather than going to do a seminar, he had an experience this weekend. It's going to make it remarkable. There's something different. And it's those tiny little details that will make that experience exceptional. The things that are trivial. And, you know, I talked about this yesterday. The first gym I ever worked at, I used to, I used to buy cases of water and I used to put them in my locker. So my locker was just full of cases of water. And every time a client came in, I'd give them a bottle of water. But then every other client that was having PT in the place would go, how come they get a bottle of water and I don't? Which made me stand out. You know, the trainers hated me. You know, and again, this was the, the place we were just at before. They, uh, I went and met Kathy before, and, and Kathy actually commented on one of my posts on social media the other day, and she goes, yeah, I remember all the trainers hated you. 
because I was literally there five minutes and, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd been there, she said five minutes, it wasn't, I'd been there like three or four weeks and Time Out magazine rolled up and they wanted to do an interview with me as one of the best personal trainers in London. I'd only gone back into, I'd actually been stuck in an office for a couple of years because I'd been brought on by a company in London to build their gyms. They were building these exquisite gyms. They brought me on as the, the gym manager and the manager of the medical team. And I'd been stuck in an office for two years. So I'm personal trained for two years. And they brought me on to this this gym in London, which was the place to be if you were a coach in London. And a couple of weeks in, I've got a waiting list. A couple of weeks after that, I'm getting interviewed by a Time Out magazine about being the best personal, one of the best personal trainers in London. I'd right. only been back in personal training for literally six weeks. Right. And apparently every single coach in the place. And I had clients. I took on a client there. And the client only told me a couple of years after that. She was one of my longest serving clients. She told me a couple of weeks later, a couple of years later, that she got a phone call off three of the trainers from that gym telling them, telling her not to train with me because I was a clown. And I was like, you know, because I'd rolled in there. And, and it, for me, it wasn't an experience. Being a PT was not about me going into a facility and making friends with other PTs. Sure. For me, it was about going in there, servicing client needs and getting busy, which is how I went in. You know, I went in like a bull in a china shop. You know, I've gone in, I've started talking to management. I've, you know, talked to the sales and marketing team. I was like, you know, I was there. The just world needs more trainers like you, man. You know, and it, but this is this is the thing that we talk about. And, and hence, that brings me on to where the academy kind of developed, mm -hmm. is that I was like, look, the reality is I'm only going to deal with half a dozen clients. So how do I deal with more clients? So I thought about online coaching, thought about group models. And I'm like, well, hold on. If I just go straight to the horse's mouth here and go, right, if I start coaching coaches, and at the time I'd actually started dabbling in seminars and started doing some seminars. I did a couple of UP did, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And they, they, were, they were quite popular. And this, you know, shy reserved chap from the North who, you know, used to be terrified at university when he was told to speak in front of a bunch of people was like going, I'm going to charge people to come and listen to me speak, you know, and it just took off. And this was at a time when nobody else was doing it. So, you know, I'd, I'd open a seminar up on fat loss and I'd sell 200 tickets to it, you know. So I was filling this huge room out and, you know, there's hundreds of people. And I, I always remember walking into this room going, oh my God, they're all here to listen to me right. speak, you know. And I, you know, from a financial perspective, it was, I was selling a hundred couple hundred tickets yeah. uh, you know 150 200 pound a pop yeah. you know it was it was a phenomenal thing you know from a business perspective but also wow these people are here to hear me speak so then from that it was hold on could i then develop something on an educational level the level three was horrendous the the entry point to this industry certainly in the uk is is awful i think in the us it's not much better in that you can decide you, you're going to be a pt you can jump on groupon and get a pt certification for about 40 pounds you know, and that is, and everybody's mourning about this entry point. They're going, you know, the level of, and the standard of PT in this in this country is horrendous. I said, brilliant. I said, that means you're going to stand you out. You have an opportunity. You're going to stand out. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like you know, gyms, like like your gym opening up and then this big box gym opening right next door to it. And this was a, a discussion I had at the conference uh, the other week. A guy came up to me and you could see the fear in his eyes. He was like, look, I'm on this private facility and there's this big box budget gym just opening right next door to me. I said, brilliant. And he just looked at me. He was like, what? I said, brilliant. I said, you don't have to worry about marketing. I goes, you've got three, you three, 4,000 people coming to your door. I said, your service is better than theirs, right? He goes, yeah. I goes, brilliant. I said, they, they create an entry point for people who normally wouldn't go to the gym. Because what these budget gyms do, and, and uh, I don't think it's really a model that's, that's massive in the US, but here what we have is we have these, these budget gyms that there's no, there's no reception desk. 
you swipe, yeah. you go through a gateway and blah, blah, blah. So you don't have to communicate with people. So you've got these people at home who are terrified of the gym because of the human contact. They don't want to look at, you know, and I, I, I had this consult with a guy who, who ex-bodybuilder, opened a gym, didn't cater for bodybuilders, they cater for the general populace. And as you walked in, there was just a big wall with pictures of bodybuilders all over it. I said, get rid of that. I said, because, you know, Joe Public, who's going to walk in, and Doris from down the road, who's, you know, in her 40s, who wants to join your gym and come and work out, is going to walk in and walk straight back out again. I said, they need something welcoming. I said, and don't stick a bodybuilder on your, on your front desk. I said, right. stick somebody who is like, is like your mum. Sure. You know, who's going to talk to them, who's going to communicate with them, because straight away you've got, and the, the, the gym we were just at before, Third Space Soho, they, they used to employ, and I don't know whether this was intentional, but around the area, it's a, it's a big media hub around Soho and Golden Square and, Blah, blah, blah. And they used to employ, uh, want to be actresses and actresses, actors and actresses and dancers and entertainers. And all the reception desk is all, you know, entertainers. Yeah. So they're all flamboyant and blah, right. blah, blah. And they'd remember people's names. And it was like you'd walk in and every single member would be greeted with this phenomenal smiling face. And, you know, it's like in a lot of commercial gyms, you walk in and it's sort of somebody hands you a towel, doesn't even make eye contact. Right. And it's horrendous. And it's what we talk about with experiences, right? So then it was like, how am I going to cater to this? And my logic then was, if I can teach a coach who's then going to go away and coach 30 or 40 people in his career or her career, I'm now helping inadvertently this knock-on effect of all these other people. Right. So how do I keep doing what I did to start with? Would do it in a better way and get it to more people. Right. So you took out, you took all this information and you built a training certification, um, an online more than just a certification. It's 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 an online hub for everything to do with personal training, and you also wrote a book, um, a great great nutrition book, which is actually my most suggested nutrition reference for people. I read it. Thank I love you. it. It's amazing, man. So, um, walking through that, then walking through the book and your course, maybe or your your seminar where you go out and teach people fat loss. What are the things that you know, the general public needs to know about fat loss and the coaches need to know about fat loss that you would teach in these seminars. So fat loss is one thing that to you and I is like, oh, well, we know how to do that. That's yeah, relatively yeah. simple. But to most people, there it seems to be this um, polarizing conversation bet between these people who say it's only about macros and then the people who say there's other factors influencing this. Um, I'd love to know where you stand and your approach and um, the common mistakes people make. Depends on, it depends largely on who you're dealing with in many respects as to how you approach it because this, is, this isn't about the, the, the minutiae, the, the, the stuff where, yeah, there are factors, this, that, the other. Most factors that we're concerned about are probably irrelevant to the vast majority of people that we deal with. So I'm dealing with coaches who, for the most part, are dealing with a fat loss population. They're dealing with general public. They are not dealing with athletes. They're not dealing with bodybuilders. They're not dealing with, you know, and the problem we have is, is most of the people in our industry want to educate themselves and learn this stuff at this higher advanced level. They want to know how to get someone shredded. I'm like, you need to know how to get someone to lose weight first. Sure. You know, so the, you have to be there at the start of this journey. So when we look at, you know, again, Doris from down the road, Doris comes in, you know, wants to lose a bit of weight. Is it about calories? Is it about food choices? Is it, about, it depends. It depends on where her problem lies. Is that I remember back in the day, I used to be big on, I used to be very anti-calories. He used to be like, look, I didn't lose weight through counting calories. I lost weight through changing my food choices. My food choices were awful, which meant if I changed my food choices, I'm going to drop my calories. So I kind of did it in a different way. So therefore, I got hung up on this whole thing where it's it's about clean eating. It's about this, that, and this is, you know, years ago. And, and 
I still believe that to some degree because inadvertently, if you clean up what you eat and you start eating more whole foods and blah, 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 you will drop your calories. So we're creating the same outcome, but we're just approaching it in a slightly different way. So a lot of the stuff we do with coaches is looking at, you know, the general populace and what are they, what are the problems? The problems are that most of them have habits and behaviors that don't align with the outcome they want. That's it. But we're approaching it with a bodybuilding mentality a lot of the time. And again, I keep referring back to bodybuilding because ultimately when, when I started in this industry, the only point of information I had readily available to me, we're not talking about scientific studies. I remember doing my dissertation. My dissertation, I had to sit in the British Library and take every single one out individually. Every single study on creatine that I could find, I had to take out individually. I had to retype you know, all the information from it. I had to type the, the references. There was no copy and paste. There was no finding PubMed. There was no, none of this existed. So when I was starting in this industry, probably when you were, you know, my reference point were magazines, largely written by bodybuilders for bodybuilding. Because if you looked at the people that were really good at transforming the bodies, it was bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. So there was this whole thing about, right, you've got to take general public who have this diet that consists of they have cereal, milk for breakfast, whatever it might be. They have a sandwich for lunch. They have a pizza for evening meal or fish and chips or sausage and chips or whatever it might be. And then we've got to make them now eat porridge, chicken and broccoli, you know, fish and whatever it might be. And we then wonder why they're failing. Because what we've done is we've taken all these habits and behaviors that they're so used to, these these palates that they want, you know, something happening with. And we've said, right, you're going to totally ignore all that. You can't socialize with your friends. I remember years ago, you know, I'd, I'd worked with a coach and myself because I, I needed someone to be accountable to. Sure. And the coach would be like, well, you can't go out this weekend. Because, you know, and I wasn't bodybuilding, I was competing. I was just like, he goes, I said, so how do I deal with this? He goes, don't go out. Easy swear. You know, don't go out with your family. Don't eat out with your family. Don't eat out with your friends. So it's easy swear. I said, well, what about if you tell me what to eat? He goes, nah, easy swear is just to stay in, eat stuff out your Tupperware. The reality is that most people that you will deal with as a coach, certainly, you know, outside of the population, the more extreme populations, they're not going to carry their food around with them. It's not going to happen. They're not going to prepare most of the They're not going to prepare the food. We know that, again, I talked the other day about millennial, uh, you know, millennials and seniors and generational differences, is that you, if you were born post-1976, chances are you can't cook. You know, statistics tell us this. Mm-hmm. The average person who was born post-1976 can only cook between two and three meals. So, Sounds about right. You know, so, so we've got to cater for somebody who is going to buy nearly all of their food ready-made. So, so we've got to look at what Is that a stat in the US or is that a world like North American or European? I can't recall. It's got to be an American stat, man. Because like, it it's well so be. fast most, food centric. Most stats are. Yeah. yeah so, so fast food centric. And again, it's, you know, I was born in 77. I love cooking. Yeah. You know, I'm, Me too. so I'm completely out of the. But I grew up in a world where the only way to transform your body and the only way to get in shape was to learn to cook do it yourself do it yourself yeah. and to eat like a bodybuilder which is what yeah. I did for years you know yeah. I, I can't stand tins of tuna now because I used to literally <laughs> just shovel them down my neck yeah you know and it's because it was this whole thing you can't make food palatable if you enjoy it if you enjoy it chances are it's not right I'm like well no that doesn't really work so sometimes the, making it taste good though is a gateway right so like sometimes eating bland oh. food with no salt and no fat is the best way to go because it, it doesn't kind of open up that gateway to something else. Yeah, as soon but, as you but, but is that a mentality sweet, of us? Or, or everybody? Versus, I think it's just a human nature thing. Like if, if I put a bunch of Splenda on top of your sweet potato with some cinnamon, that sweet 
taste in your mouth, I think, is a trigger. A trigger for what? For more eating, for for like potentially, yeah, because because I'm chasing taste, right? Yeah. But is everybody not chasing taste anyway? So so without us sure. going, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna completely mute your palate, without me doing that. Which again, I ate for years with a muted palate. I was like, I, I can't, can't have it. Can't have it. I can all, I, I can't still have to this taste. day. I'm more of I just I'm all about texture. Taste is like T- meh. Yeah, it's just texture. But all part of the same thing, game. right? Yeah. Most bodybuilding food was literally it was like you've got. The, the hard piece of protein, then you got mush, right? And it was, and and you kind of just ignored it yep. because it was the outcome that you wanted didn't rely on you having that, and you were drilled into you that you know the no pain, no gain. The you know it's got to be like this, and this is how it's going to be. And you know I didn't eat chocolate for ten years. You know I, I, bags of crisps. I was like no, categorically. You know, and, and there were things that I grew up eating that I just refused point blank to eat them. But I know that most people don't have that kind of mentality and they don't have that kind of tenacity to be able to do that. So if I'm looking at Doris down the road, who I'm going to look at what she eats. I'm going to look at the things that she enjoys. I'm going to look at the stuff that ticks the box for her palate-wise. I'm going to look at the taste, the texture. I'm going to look at all those things. And I'm going to say, right, what's the goal with somebody like Doris? Doris has got to be more active, so I'm going to implement the activity. If I'm personal trainer, that's going to happen anyways. So she's now burning more calories. Now I've got to get her in some way to change her behaviors and her habits. Now, me giving somebody who can squat 20 kilos, 200 kilo bar and saying, just keep doing it until you can do it. They're going to, every single day, they're going to fail. Now, most people can't cope with that. Some people do very well. You know, if I just keep giving you something and you keep failing at it, and I, I know with you, if I said to you, you can't do this, you'll probably go away and prove it wrong. Most people don't, <laughs> Most have, people don't, Most people don't have that mentality, right? right? So so what I would need is every day they would have to succeed with whatever they're trying to achieve. So I'd send them away with something that would be possible for them to do. So I'd take... So that's not when they're with you, that's when... Yeah, own. so so I'd, I'd look at their, their diet and, and often, I, you know, and I always refer back to this, I'd often take a diet plan or a diet log that somebody's given me and give it straight back to them. I'd say, do that again. I said, you picked everything, you chose everything, there's no excuse whatsoever. You can't come back to me and go, I don't like that. And I didn't write that, you did. And chances are they probably missed some stuff out of it, which means straight away they're in a calorie deficit. Mm-hmm. And straight away they're, they're becoming more accustomed to what they're eating and more aware of what they're consuming. It's like identifying someone's hyperpalatable food. You know, I do this in seminars. I'll be like, look, tell me what your food is that you're overindulgent with. And, and we get this kind of broad statement where people go, it's chocolate. Like, it's not chocolate. Like, it's chocolate. It's like saying sugar, right? People like sugar. Sugar. It's not sugar. Otherwise, you'd get a bowl of sugar and you get a spoon and you consume it. It's not sugar. It's just the vast majority of foods that are hyperpalatable and flavoursome and blah 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 will have sugar and fat in them. Yep. So now we can, sugar and yep, fat, right? so we can now just point the finger and go, sugar's the thing that's making fat. No, it isn't. It's a combination of all those different things. Mm-hmm. Sugar's in there. You know, so we can't point the finger at sugar, just like we can't point the finger at chocolate. It's not chocolate. Because if I give you a range of chocolate bars, there's some of them you're gonna throw in the bin. So don't tell me it's chocolate. It isn't chocolate. It's a certain flavor, taste, ratio texture, and ratio, whatever it might be. And, yeah. You give me a 40% cocoa chocolate bar, I can't stand it. You give me a 90%, I can't stand it. You give me something in the 70 to 85% range, ooh, I'm going to struggle to put that down. Right. You know, it's like ice cream, right? It's a particular flavor, taste, texture, whatever it might be. Whereas I can give you another type of ice cream that you will not even touch. So a lot of that is awareness, right? So one of the first things we do with clients is to go, right, what are your hyperpalatable? You tell me what they are because you know the ones you've got problems with. Then 
The goal then isn't then to turn around to that person and go, I'm going to ban you from consuming them because if you ban something, you make it omnipresent in the head, right? So I'm just going to go, look, there you go. You've just told me what your problem foods are. So next time they go to problem food, now they're fully aware of it. They're like, oh, that's my problem food. Whereas before they didn't know it as a problem food. They weren't aware of that fact. So it's little things like that that we'll introduce and then we'll look at, you know, the diet that I gave back to them. We then bring it back and go, right, so habitually every Friday night you consume this. Now, we need to save a couple hundred calories or a hundred calories in that. If we apply that same rule to every single one of your meals whilst also increasing your output, you're going to start to lose weight. Now, when they start to lose weight, they're not stupid. General public aren't stupid. You ask them in their diet what they should and shouldn't be eating. Most of them know. You know, so what I want is them to turn around to me and go, I don't want to eat that anymore. Not me to tell them they can't eat it. Tell me a strategy that you implement. So I think science is pretty clear on once you start to lose weight, your ghrelin levels go up. Mm -hmm. Your body senses like, hey, you're losing weight. You need to eat more. So if you lose, say, call it you know, 10 kilos this week yeah. and or the next two weeks and all of a sudden your body starts producing more ghrelin. Do you have any intervention strategies for that? Because I know, like, it's unconscious for most people, right? It's like right. I don't realize that I'm hungry, that I'm more hungry, and or that I'm eating more food. I just do. So is it just a matter of having that plan and sticking to it, or is there some strategy you have there for? There's always going to be the element where somebody's going to get hungry, right? Yeah. You know, it's always going to happen. But I want to keep that to a minimum, and I want them to accept the fact that that will probably happen. But we don't want it to be an extreme. So if I take someone who needs only, they need to drop their calories from 2,500 to 2,400 and increase their activity to lose weight. I'm not going to drop them to 1,000 calories. That's just stupid. You know, that's ridiculous because we know it's not sustainable. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be people who will sustain it. There will be. Sure. There's always going to be that one client. And this goes back to PT industry. Those are the ones that get the person, the before yeah. and afters. Yeah, before and afters. Right. I've, I've dealt with 20 clients. One of them got results. Brilliant. That was the one that told it. And, and I would yeah. say in seminars, I'd be like, I've got a room full of 100 people. Yeah. I'm going to put every single person on this in this room. You're going to do 20 minutes cardio a day. You're going to do weights. I'll give you all the exact same program. You're all going to eat chicken and broccoli six times a day. Who's going to lose weight and get in shape? Two people, maybe three. Yeah, but everybody, if they do it. If they actually do it, yeah. So it's all to do with the people that do it, right? Yeah. But there's only going to be certain mentalities, people who actually like chicken and broccoli, and you know, it's it. there's going to be elements to it. So the strategy there is that when I'm taking somebody who's eating probably foods that aren't satiated, they're not going to fill them up, right? So there's this version where when people start to overconsume food, typically there's also a pattern that they probably don't eat enough vegetables, right? But I need to give them an excuse to put vegetables in there. Now, one of the best selling points of vegetables to me is the fact that it'll make you feel full. Not the taste, not the texture, not anything else, not the nutrients, because nobody gives a who about that. You know, not initially they don't. Mm -hmm. You know, people are like, oh, I'm worried about my health, but they're still eating crap. They're not that worried about it. So what I would then do is I'd then start to go, right, we need to introduce probably more veg vegetation, vegetables, fruit, whatever it might be. We need food that is going to make you feel fuller for longer. I don't know, that sounds really cheesy, but we're going to, give you food that makes you feel fuller for longer and we're going to start to introduce more of this which is going to fill your plates up more how much, of, how much of that though is is an actual food volume thing versus a hormonal thing right because i know a lot of people start eating and you know you have some people who can stop at a small portion and then you have some people who can eat a tremendous amount and that's just a gateway for more right so right so if i give you let's say yeah, i yeah, give yeah. you 100 grams of rice and I give me 100 grams of rice. Mm -hmm. We're probably going to have, even if if it's, um, you know, we're same body weight, uh, eating exact same foods, we could have a different satiation response, right? So if I'm, you know, so for some people that 100 grams of food, even though, or that 
with the vegetables could still increase their hunger typically, right? Cool. So these different kind of phenotypic expressions. Do you have, so the, right? I'm just looking for some and, and, and kind of strategic is, way to right. help so, people so let's overcome take 100 that. grams of rice, right? Yeah. I'm going to overcook yours. Okay. I'm going to undercook mine. Okay. Now, we're going to have a bowl of each. Which one are you going to overconsume? Which one becomes, you know, I'm going to add a bit of salt to yours. Right. Mine isn't. Mine's just plain. Plain boiling water, right. been overcooked slightly, or whatever it might be. Now, all of a sudden now, that food becomes something that I don't enjoy isn't palatable, isn't... Is that the goal, though? Is that the goal to make it slightly less palatable so that you don't... No, no, it's the other way. You want to make it, to I, it. I want them to enjoy it. I want them to enjoy it because that is something they're seeking. You know, people seek more from food than just nutrients. That's not... So it's the idea of the Lay's potato chip, right? I bet you can't eat just one as their marketing. So my thought uh, is Pringles. like the more... We have Pringles. Once you pop, you can't stop. Right. Same thing, yeah. yeah. So if someone is consuming a food they enjoy... You'll have some people who can stop and some people who will voraciously seek right. more. But we've already identified that as the hyperpalatable food, the one they can't put down. So we're just going to say... We're trying to sit somewhere in the middle, de right? Decrease their so, calories. So I don't, I don't want the food that they hate and despise. I don't want the food that they're going to overconsume. So I'm going to just find eliminate some, that food they're going to overconsume, or no, you reduce their calories. Them, I'm making them aware of it. Just I'm going look, it's it's you know it's there. It's you've got to be aware of the fact that if you start eating that, you're not going to stop. So if I make you more aware of it, don't get me wrong. There's going to be people that will come back and go, yeah, I'm still eating it. I'm still eating it. I'm still eating it. I'm still eating it. But that that could then be a matter of they're probably not in the right place to be achieving what they want to achieve, right? Or they don't prioritize it. What are the primary uh, causes or catalysts for that type of behavior in your eyes? Is it uh, hyper-stressed environment? Is it uh, genetic uh, expression? Is it habit? What are the things we want to start looking at? I would be speculating if I was to say I knew which one it was. You know, for me to go look, it's a hormonal thing. I don't know that. Right. I'm just assuming that, you know, I'm looking at all the potential. Could it be stress? Could it be stress? But again, do I have a clear understanding of the stress level of a particular? Remember, most of it's intrinsic, right? You know, so, most people don't talk about it. Most people don't know what's. So going you're exploring on it with a client who comes in, because that's a really yeah. interesting thing for me. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm looking at behavior from you know an external perspective, but as a coach, I'm looking at causes of behavior. Yeah, you're and looking I'm, at patterns, right? Because if yeah. again, if we look at habits, right? You, you look at habit. A habit always has a contextual cue. There's always a reason why somebody does something habitually. And, and we're not trying to address the habit itself. We're trying to address the contextual cue. We're trying to look at what they did that preceded it that caused mm -hmm. them to do it. You know, so a lot of the time when we're looking at those, we're looking at, you know, what is the thing that's causing them to overeat? Is it the taste? Is it the texture? Is it the flavor? Is it the, you know, so the is rice the thing, environment. right? Is the environment. You know, is it, are they in a social? So so when we do a food food diary, the most important aspect to a food diary for me isn't the quantity, isn't the food, isn't the, it's the context in which it was eaten in. Do you write that in a food diary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a, we have a diary where, where, you know, who did you eat it with? Where did you eat it? You know, and I'm looking at all those different aspects because they're more important to me than the rest of it. Because now I start to get an idea of the context in which they consume the food in. So if if you always, I know that, you know, I'm going to be influenced by my friends. You know, there's certain friends I'll go out and I'll drink beer with. Certain You're friends a terrible I'll go out. Guy, I know. Certain friends I'll go Get out. Get some red wine. <laughs> but there's certain friends I'll go out and I'll drink wine with. Right. You know, but it's part of it is to do with that social acceptance of, of the person. Now, if you're not the dominating party there, now, I'm the sort of person who'll roll up and I'll be the one who dictates what we drink. Right. You know, not everybody's like that. Except when you're here. Except when I'm here. are <laughs> like, yeah, okay, then what are we drinking? Red wine. Yeah. So, and, and you're always led by somebody. And the problem is, a lot of the time, is we're dealing with people who aren't that dominant 
part of that party. So they can't control their social right. situation. So we're trying to control it in the best way, shape or form. So again, I'll use an example. So uh, on a Friday night, you go out with a bunch of friends. You're not the dominating party. They want to go to an Italian. You go to an Italian every time. Everybody orders pizza. You don't want to be the person ordering chicken salad, right? Because straight away, it's going to draw attention to the fact that you're trying to lose weight. Right. Chances are you've tried to lose weight multiples of times before, which means your four of the friends are now going to ridicule you. And they're going to wind you up and go, oh my God, are you trying to lose weight again? Blah, blah, blah. So right. that person doesn't want attention drawn to them. But how can I do what I need to do, which is save them a few hundred calories? That's all I need to do. You know, at this stage, all I need to do is for them to get starting to lose weight. I'm not bothered about the hormones. I'm not bothered about ghrelin. I'm not bothered about any of that stuff. I'm bothered about them going out having the social situation that you used to have, leaving all the context in there, the taste, the texture, all those things. But I want them to tick the box that I need to tick right now, which is for them to reduce their caloric intake plus increase their output. Now, as they start to lose weight, their mentality changes. They start to go, hold on, whoa, that pizza's probably not best for weight loss, is it? No, you're right. So can I change it? Now, I never told them to do that. They've decided for themselves. So they almost guide the whole scenario themselves. But as long as I'm getting enough feedback, I'm going to be able to, again, it's like pinpointing that thing. Is it a hormonal thing? I don't know. Are there any foods that you are against? So like you'll hear the typical nutritionist and I'm I'm this guy, so don't judge me. Um, Gluten, dairy, grains, um, soy, corn, gone. No, I'm not. You just think if you enjoy it, eat it? No. If it doesn't cause you any harm, go ahead. But it, you but know, how do we rationalize that with with a client who? But this, but this is also this is this is part of that food equation. Is that if I get someone to move in the direction I want them to move in, chances are they're probably going to minimize the amount of dairy they consume, the gluten they consume, the corn they consume. They're going to minimize right. it all, but they're going to minimize it on their terms, not on mine. The problem is if I start banning foods that they are, that maybe aren't causing the problems. If they are causing the problems, yeah, of course, they're gone. But I've got to, if I've got, you know, Doris who, if she eats a sandwich at lunch, she has a pizza, she has a whatever it might be, and there's gluten in most of the food that she consumes. Now, if I ban gluten, I'm just joining the dietary bandwagon. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, look, I'm going to I'm gonna eliminate most of your food choices. You have no idea what to eat for the next few weeks, which means you're going to reduce calories, which is kind of how a lot of them work, right? If I say to you, I'm going to ban... You take an average Western diet, five pound wheat, everybody's going to lose weight. Not because of wheat. They're going to lose weight because they, they well, can't so decide what to eat. do you subscribe to, to the um, argument that wheat, at least in, in the presence of glyphosate, is pro-inflammatory and causing leaky gut? But if I've got a massive overweight person, I might bother about At that stage, what is the thing is that is going to benefit their health the most? Weight loss. Period. To you just know? eat less. Weight loss. Weight loss is always going to be my. I'm going to look at somebody like that, and this is just again my perspective. And it's you know is that what is the most damaging thing to that person right now? If I've got somebody who's morbidly or clinically obese, the biggest threat to their health, their environment, everything there is now is weight. They are overweight, overweighing the, but, and, uh, or outweighing inflammation. Yeah, but what's the thing that's going to bring inflammation now? Probably the quickest is weight loss. You know, so what do I want to get the ball rolling with? I want to get them moving weight. Okay. And what's the thing that's going to motivate them the most? Weight loss. Right. What's the thing going to motivate them to change their food choices? Weight loss. You know, so without the weight loss as the instigator for it all, the rest of it just becomes another, almost like a fad, right? Well, to play the devil's advocate, what if I if I took away these inflammatory foods, 
I could potentially improve the way they feel subjectively, right? That maybe their brain fog is better. Maybe they feel a little less groggy. Maybe their energy is a little bit better. Maybe they sleep a little bit better. That leads to, to fat loss and weight loss. But somebody who is obese, are they going to notice the difference? Uh, this is it about, depends how much of a change you make, I guess, right? Yeah, but this is about understanding what it's like for an obese person, right? You know, we... I have an experience of being overweight as a kid, right? I don't have these solid memories of what it was like to walk around inflamed and overweight and stress on my joints and feeling sluggish and lethargic and blah, blah, blah. So do I know the difference? You know, and by reducing the inflammation, somebody's massively obese. My argument there would be is that did they notice the difference? Because I've seen people who, you know, throughout my entire career, you know, I've had 20 years of dealing with people, you know, I've done, you know, 30, 40,000 PT sessions. I've dealt with a lot of people. And in the obese people that I used to deal with early in my career, I used to do the bodybuilding approach, right? So what I used to do is I used to take gluten, wheat, you know, everything out of it. They didn't notice the difference. I wonder if there's a difference in region. So arguably, if I'm not mistaken, glyphosate is not legal in the UK. Um, so there may be actually a difference in the quality of wheat. So I can eat wheat in Maybe. Europe and have no issue. Like if I'm in Italy, yeah, I'll see, smash see, this, pizza, this, this again, when I used to work abroad, I used to, most of the food was, you know, sourced bread. in the US. Well and oh, I, really? I used to, yeah, I used to have really, I used to have really bad problems with bread. You know, I used to make me feel bloated. I used to feel really sluggish on it, blah, blah, blah. So I just chose not to eat it. Right. But I could tell the difference, you know, because I came from, a, uh, you know, eating food that was, and up until that point, I hadn't really consumed lots of breads because early on in my journey, I eradicated it just because I knew it was a food I overconsumed. You know, I used to, you grew up north, we used to have bread with, sure. we'd have toast for breakfast, we'd have a sandwich at lunch, we'd have an evening right. meal, but and we'd have a side of bread. quality wheat at the time, right? Yeah, better quality of food, but th th this goes down to literally everything. And, and let's go back on Doris, right? It's all one good me turning around to Doris and saying, look, you've got to buy better quality food, but right now her budget isn't great, sure. right? So I've got to look at that as a contextual you know, part of the argument is that I've got to think: is she, is she going to go out there and buy grass-fed steak? If I tell her, she might. Right. Is she going to notice the difference? No, she isn't. You know, physically, there will be a difference. You know, we know that there's going to be positive things happening. We know all this stuff, but is it going to make a difference to her right now? Because the only difference she sees is a hole in a wallet. That's all she sees right now. So although it might not appear very purist and it might not appear and, and you know, somebody might say, I've got this morbidly obese client, blah, blah, blah. I put them on grass-fed this, devoid of gluten, they're buying better quality food, they're buying more veg, all this stuff's organic, blah, blah, blah. So the only, notice, the only thing that they will notice is the impact financially, which is another reason for them to stop doing it. I don't agree with that. So I'll, I'll take people and put them on a restricted diet and I'll take those five major things away. And the, the subjectivity of feeling better is almost immediate. Right. And I'm, then that's I, just empowering. Again, I'm Different gonna, demographic, I'm gonna, maybe. Yeah, but I'm also going to play devil's advocate sure. here, is that when you have somebody who starts working with you, they trust you. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They'll Which do whatever you, I say. They'll yeah. do whatever you say. And that is the big argument, yeah. is that the vast majority of coaches that I'm dealing with and teaching to be coaches, people don't trust them. People don't trust them. They don't know enough about them. They don't have background. They don't have a history. I know that I can go to any client, tell them to do anything, they'll do it. They can do it, yeah. They'll do it because they they trust me and what I say. Now, if I stuck you, if I stuck you in a gym up north and you tried to implement the same strategies that you use, 
there would be a high failure You're rate. You're right, different demographics. So I guess it, it's completely dependent. Because they wouldn't have a clue who you are. Yeah. So they don't it, know anything about your background. They don't know why you've done that. And they'd be like, well, my last training banned gluten and banned wheat and banned dairy and banned all But I wouldn't do that with, so that's, you're right, it's contextual. So if I went into a demographic like that, I would look for like one lever I could pull, right? And that's the way I approach everyone's transformation. So what would the first lever you pull be? It depends what the biggest bottleneck is, right? right? So So it's like, hey, we need to improve your sleep. So again, let's go right back to massively obese person. Sleep, whatever. They've they've got shit sleep. Their training's awful. They've got... They're inflamed. They've got joint problems. They've got all these different problems. But fundamentally, they're obese. What's your first protocol? Depends on what they're willing to do. My first protocol is typically, like, I just want you to walk when you wake up in the morning. Right. So your first goal is to get them Calories. to lose weight. Yeah. Is to get them to lose weight. Sure. Now, just if, give them if, move. if at the same time, you could improve their food choices slightly, you know, so let's say they have so peanut that butter. That isn't even for, for weight loss, though, to be honest. That's more for blood flow, energy flow, electron transfer, you know, brain. But what did they come to you for? They didn't come to you for but, electron transfer. But they, they can't, didn't come for So I'm using, that as, I'm using that as a lever to get them moving, to feel better, to then anchor onto but, but, something else. But what did they ask you for? It doesn't matter what they asked me for. They're asking for a long-term result. But Right? Yeah. But, so they're asking me to, 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 asking to trust me with the long-term end result of no, how I want to lose this fat. Is, this is, again, going back on what I said to you before, is that the people already trust you. Is that if, I, you said, if we put in a scenario where I'm, I'm, I'm not trusted. But they're not going to trust you. They're not going to trust you. They're going to lose trust and faith very, very quickly. If you've, they've came to you and said, Ben, I want to lose weight. And you go, right, we're going to walk, we're going to breathe your circulation, we're going to do all these different That's things. That's it. And, and ultimately, you're not going to lose weight for the first few weeks because we're too busy doing all these other things that aren't I, important I, I don't you. disagree. I, I completely disagree. If, if someone walks in the morning for any amount of time, the way they'll feel for the rest of the day will be different. Of course. So that is, is a catalyst enough to get buy-in psychologically and physiologically to get them to create another behavior change. So it's the stacking of habits, right? So I'm looking like, okay, how do we create one thing that they can do? Even if it's like, hey, I want you to go walk for but 10 minutes. But what's your direction of your habits though? Remember, they came to you with a goal. What was the goal? The goal was to lose weight. Nothing else. But right? ultimately, weight loss is bullshit unless I can change your life, unless I can change your habits. Of course, but this is what I'm saying is that what I, you know, it, it it's just a different approach. It's the same outcome. Sure. But, but what we're looking at here is that I'm looking at the things they currently do and they're comfortable with, and I'm going, I'm going to make you feel slightly more com- uncomfortable. Right. But I don't even gonna... want to change your food yet, right? That's my approach. Is like you 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 do that, you keep doing it. What I want you to do is I want you to but I want what, to remove. But do they want to change their food? They do. So I've got to appease that somehow. They're going, I want to change my food, Ben. I want to change my food. Well, and, then we appease it, but and, and it's if not I, my first level. And if I don't do that initially, if they come to me for weight loss, they know they're changing the food. Straight off the bat. They know they're changing the food. Okay, so, unless so I, what's I, their uh, adherence rate? Like with, with, with changing the food, right? So uh, what I'm trying to do is try to create a strategy that creates deeper and deeper and deeper buy-in cost. to me and deeper and deeper and deeper habituation around healthy habits. Yep. So like, I'm going to go, hey, let's walk in the morning. Hey, let's cut out your blue light after 7 p.m. so you sleep a little bit better. Yeah. If I can make those two things move, their body composition changes without having to look at their calories, right? And then all of a sudden, oh, I feel better. I don't have so much stress and but anxiety. But how does body composition change by them getting more sleep? Just definitively by decreasing their inflammation and improving their sleep, they're going to lose body. They're going to lose body fat. Like, depending depending how bad their sleep is to begin with, right? Yeah, of course. most people who are obese are course, terrible but, but I'm going to get more impact from somebody moving more and eating slightly less calories than them sleeping better. Doubt it. Yeah, doubt it. Really? From my experience, yeah. Uh, if I can make somebody sleep eight hours, they're going to feel better, and it, it's a good eight hours. A good. But ratio. is that because they're eating less because they're sleeping more? Maybe. Um, Maybe, but may, I, I think, so we know, science will tell you, if someone sleeps less, they do what more during the day? Cheat more on their diet, yeah, right? Yeah. They eat more, eat more bad calories. 
So if I can get somebody moving in the morning, get them exposed to some blue light and, and or sorry, some sunshine in the morning and allow them to sleep better at night. I know that I, I believe that I can change their habits more in the, or throughout yeah. the day. So that to about, me, but it's not about whether you believe it or not. It's whether they believe it. I don't think they need to believe it. I think, the, the feeling of how much better you would physiologically feel from just doing those two things would, be, would create a catalyst for like, you know, I just not as, I'm right. not as hungry. So I'm going to throw you, I'm going to throw you, let's call him Dave. Dave is a client of mine, okay, a workaholic, right? And I'm now telling this workaholic, Dave, who's been a workaholic for the last 20 years, I'm telling him he's got to turn all his devices off at 7 o'clock. What does he see? What's the first thing he sees? Is it positive or is it negative? So I've got a client who makes, uh, well, I don't know how much he makes, but he sells a million pairs of shoes every month on Amazon. Yeah. So you could speculate what he makes. And I said, hey, man, would it be reasonable for you to turn your, your electronics off one hour earlier at night? I'm going to go, what time do you turn them off now? He goes, nine. So let's try eight. But again, my argument is he trusts you. He's already got the buy-in. Uh, but I'm asking for his buy-in. I, I, I don't even ask but, him. But, he's already, but you already got his buy-in because he signed up with you. He knows you. Not, no, no, long, no longer a client. So client in the past, now he's calling. He's, we're friends now. He goes, hey, man, I'm having a really hard time losing weight. I'm having a hard time sleeping. His body composition changed. He put on muscle like that from just improving his sleep. And all we did was progressively over four-week uh, four increments brought his, his blue light exposure down an hour. And then we brought it back. So we brought it back to, to eight, then seven. Then we put blue light blocking glasses on him at six. And his sleep went through the roof. His body composition changed overnight. But, the, but then, right, so Peter, Peter, the personal trainer from, you know, wherever it might be, right? You know, he's been in the industry five minutes. He's been in the industry five minutes. You know, Doris has came along to him and Doris has said, look, I want to lose some weight, Peter. Peter goes, right, what we're going to do is we're going to turn off your devices an hour early in the evening. Just think about that just for a second. Three it doesn't the, sound like a big three, lever, but that's not my first lever, right? I'm looking for anything. No, of course, but, but Peter's now given her something that looks out the norm, that is a little bit diverse, is a little bit out there. And she's going, hmm, not too sure about this. Yeah, but when she sees a definitive change. But how long is that going to take? Whereas if I get a- One if day. I, if I take a, she's not going to feel that though. She's not going to know Subjectively, that. Subjectively, how do you know that? Have you ever had lack of sleep? I, I know that because I've dealt with clients for many, many years. And one of the first things I used to look at was sleep. Mm -hmm. And my impact it has on them from a perspective of, do they come in satisfied that they're moving in the right direction? No, because oh, as only far as if it's concern, not a big lever for them. If they're sleeping okay already, we're going to leave it as is, right? Yeah. Most people don't, right? Most people wake up in the morning and they feel like shit and they need coffee. If you're someone who wakes up in the morning and needs coffee, sleep is a lever for you. Yeah, but it, same thing. What if what if this guy refused? What's your next lever? Well, that's a different scenario. Why are we refusing, right? Like if they're refusing. He's refusing because you're Peter. You're not Ben. You're Peter who's been in the industry five minutes, who's working out of a big box gym in the arse of nowhere. Nobody knows who you are. You're a young kid. He's a 40-year-old successful businessman. And you're telling him to turn off his devices an hour early. Well, why is he coming to me at all then? Right? Like, because, if because he's paying Peter, me for anything. But, this is, the, but this, is the, this is the scenario that I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with hundreds, thousands of personal trainers in the UK who are new to the industry, who are acquiring clients because people want personal trainers, not them. They don't want them. You don't know? want a personal trainer. They just want a personal trainer. And the problem is, is that... So you, you know, just need to create buy-in. You need to create rapport and trust. But how do you create that buy-in initially with well, somebody who doesn't... You, you don't give them diverse things or wacky things. You give them sure. the things that they understand. They're well, like, it's going to be different person to person. But my, Right. But my belief is that the biggest levers are going to be movement and sleep in that order. 
Right. So, right? My, so calories so, fall further down the list for me. I know as a nutritionist, you don't always agree with that, but like I would rather have somebody physiologically feeling better and they're going to make the decision to, to eat less calories because they don't have that physiological need, the blunt cortisol. It's still, it's still the same, it's still the same outcome. I'm just looking at it in a slightly shorter, more direct and, and less convoluted, <laughs> but it, it is, a, it's a less convoluted way because. No, I'm, it's not, man. No, it's because, a, it's a more sustainable way as well. But it everybody is. knows that in order to lose weight, they need to move more and they need to eat less. Everybody knows that it's been drilled down but, people's throats. For, so but, I'm looking for a, a sustainable approach. If I just drop somebody's calories, I know they can adhere to that. But why? Yeah, but I'm, I'm I'm dropping what 100 calories per meal, which means I right. I'm going to take. I can take any meal that anybody eats, any meal that anybody eats, and save them 100 calories on it. But you're you're making the presumption that people are going to be perpetually conscious of what they eat, and that's not possible. No, I'm going to be I'm going to be accepting of the fact that the vast majority of people who consume food they buy it in a packet. Okay, I'm looking at behavior change and and what's causing the behavior in the first place, as I say. So if I know that most people are overstressed and underslept, if I can decrease the cortisol, I can decrease the impulsive eating or the overeating that's associated with blunting this cortisol, which we know if someone lacks sleep, they're going to do. I'm looking for to kind of back end their natural desire to decrease the calories. But they're only overeat. Uh, uh, the day that somebody stands up to coach be coached or, you know, look at their nutrition or whatever it might be. One of the fundamental things that they've initially got to do is they've got to do what that person tells them, right? So the the overeating thing will only become a factor probably after the first couple of weeks because for the first few weeks, they're going to have the buy-in, right? So what am I going to get or need to do in those first couple of weeks to continuously get that buy-in? So if I was to say to you, and again, you know, we're just throwing ideas out here is that, so I take Bob, We've gone through the whole name of it today. <laughs> so I take Bob, right? Went to the North American. So, so, so yeah, yeah, Bob, who, who wears a, a, a raccoon on his head. <laughs> and so, sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought now. So Bob, Bob's massively overweight, right? And Bob wants to lose weight. That's what he wants. Wants to lose weight. So I get him now to up his activity, somewhere, shape, or form. Doesn't even step in the gym. Just going to get him to up his activity by walking in the morning, like you suggested. I'm also going to take all these foods that he consistently eats and everything he consistently eats, I'm going to find a way of trimming a few calories back off it. You know, you like to do that meal by meal versus like changing one meal? Either or. Yeah. Either or. The problem with changing one meal is I've got to drastically change that meal. But if I can find a meal in his food diary that he's created for me that has no context applied to it, so you know the easiest way to eat is is to just eat on your own. Mm -hmm. So if I don't eat around friends, I don't eat. I, I eat the very best when I'm sat at home on my own because I make those choices myself. But I can also eat the very worst because there's nobody there to be accountable for, right? Mm-hmm. So I've got to look at those contexts. So I'm going to look at the, the food diary. I'm going to look at the context in which everything eats. And then I'm going to look at those contextual situations. I'm going to can I manipulate the situation? Can I manipulate the outcome? What is he willing to do? I'm not going to go, right, again, use the pizza argument. I'm not going to tell Bob to change a pizza for a chicken salad. That's stupid because we've gone from something that was maybe a couple of thousand calories to now something that's 400. I don't need that kind of extreme level of change. I just need a couple hundred calories trimmed off that because if we can apply that rule to every single meal that he's got, he's still eating fundamentally the diet he was before. But he's now starting to lose weight. So two weeks in, he's been consuming. He's like, wow, this is amazing. He goes, he goes I didn't. I'm not doing all these harsh things and extreme things I've done in the past and I'm losing weight. Now, I want you to turn your devices off in the evening. Yeah, sure. No problem. 
I want you to now increase your activity. Now I want you to start to bring down these foods or these foods that contain this particular ingredient. I want you to start to bring them down again, Bob. Bob's like, yeah, no problem. I don't disagree with what you're saying in principle. I just agree, disagree with what you're saying in practice. From experience, again, you've, you've probably trained more people than I have nutritionally. My experience is if I decrease someone's calories without first changing their behavior, they're going to cheat on their diet and they're going to cheat to an excess to the point that they regain all those calories. Have you ever, right, I'm going gonna, gonna to pick on your career here. When did you start coaching people? 17. 17, right. And throughout that entire time that you've coached people, did people already know you or know of you and know who you were and what you stood for? And where no, you... for the first 10 years of my life, I was nobody. Right. First and 10 that, years of my life, so and, and 17, how, And all of these things that you implement now, did you implement then? What was uh, your approach when you were 17, when you were 20? Well, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? It was just move. So I didn't have the compassion for people. I didn't have the scope of knowledge. So, so it was you, just like... So you trained the hell out of people and what did you do? You put them on a calorie deficit. You, uh, you made them eat bodybuilding diets. What did you do? Probably bodybuilding diets. I would, so right. My, so my first so approach away. was... Gluten's gone, wheat's gone, uh, no, dairy's gone. not even. My first approach was let's change their first meal of the day. I've always done that because right. I've seen great adherence with that because people will typically feel better. And then they know, like, if I just restrict this meal, I know I can get what it's I like want It's like making a bed in the military, right? Right. Start so we changed meal one. That was always the way I would start with people and getting them exercising. But the, this awareness around, like, because I, I didn't look at it from a lever perspective, right? Now I told you my, my first two levers for everybody is stress and sleep. If I can improve those, I know I can change behaviors. But as a 17-year-old personal trainer back in the day, do you think you could get the same buy-in you're doing now and be able to use the same almost large levers that you're using? Because you are using, you're using levers that... People don't really understand their levers. But it's an unconscious thing, right? I don't need to I don't need to tell somebody I'm changing their stress and their sleep. I just need to say, hey, I just need you to walk. Can you go outside and walk? Like that's it. But I trust you. If you tell me to do that, I've already bought into you and I know who you are and I know your background and know everything about you. Seventeen year old kid, I don't know a thing about you. You're telling me to change things that will impact my life. And the only thing, same thing. We but talk why about, would you change your diet and not walk? Like if I no, said to not, you, if I said not, to you, but Bob, I'm not asking him to change his diet and, and not walk. What I'm asking him to do is do both. I'm saying, look, I'm going to increase your activity and I'm also going to decrease calories, but I'm going to leave everything about your life pretty much as it was until you start to lose weight. And then you're going to ask me the questions and then you're going to trust me more. And when you trust me more, I can basically get you to do anything I tell you to do. Absolutely. And that but, I'm, we're but, doing the same thing, just a different you're, approach. But, you're, but you skip that first part of it. Do you know, of do, decreasing do, calories? No, no, no. You, you, you skip that initial buy-in. You no, don't, I don't need that buy-in. Oh, you no. don't need that buy-in because of who no, but you are. I'm getting I, don't need, the I don't need that buy-in. I don't need that buy-in. But I'm, I think my, my best lever for getting the buy-in is letting you feel what it feels like to have less stress and feel what it feels like to have better sleep. Because my belief, and this could be absolutely incorrect, is that 90% or more of the population lives a stressed life. Whatever that means to you. Yeah. Stress, anxiety, whatever whatever perceived amount of can stress we coordinate, is to you. Can we coordinate what they consume and the context in which they consume it with that stress? Of course. Correct, which is hence why we're looking at the context in which people But why eat. can't we just change the <coughs> underlying desire to contextually eat? So why am I contextually eating? Well, because I probably feel stressed and I'm going into this context to relieve the stress. Why am I going to go have glasses of wine But if I said to you, what context after? are you eating something in? Nobody's going to go, the context is I'm stressed. Why not? But are they going well, to- why do I go after work and drink beers? Why do I go after work and drink wine? Why do I do, I- do you go? No, do, but, it's like- but are you doing it on your own? Well, no, because people will just do it because they want to be social. 
Right, so I'm doing it to be social. So they can so, forget them. They, so they're not alone, right? It's almost like I'm choosing to be... The, but then this is this, again, this is this buy-in and that, this trust where I'm going to have a client there, 17-year-old personal trainer. I'm going to have a client who's not going to turn around to me and go, oh, yeah, I drink because I'm stressed. I drink because it's well, a Friday night. I want to be around other people yeah. because I don't want to be by myself because but then I, I don't want to listen to my brain. But that's, that's the reality. But though, then I'm right? going to tell you that last bit. As a 17-year-old personal trainer, they're going to tell you... But I we go, know that's the reality. Like, why do we typically choose we do. to go... The seventeen-year-old personal trainer doesn't. He doesn't know that's the reality. He, he's never lived any of that. Sure, he's never been stressed. Sure, lives with his mum. Right. You know, so so we can remember is that the the people that I'm coaching to be coaches are young kids. They're not people who get the buy-in. Right. But I'm talking and, just in general. If, if there's a listener to this podcast who's not a young kid, they're thirty-five plus or thirty yeah. plus. Like, what are their levers? Right. Is it? I, I agree with the way you do it. Is great. If someone has the conscious awareness and the willpower to just decrease calories a little bit, they'll absolutely get a result. I believe that that unconscious desire to eat more will kick in at some point. If you're in a caloric deficit for long enough, mm-hmm. they, they will binge. It'll kick in eventually. Won't kick in immediately, right? Uh, I, I say three to four days. Yeah. So, so, but over those three to four days, do I not need to be appeased with knowing that I'm doing the things that I think are correct? Because remember, when we're dealing with clients, people still want to do the things they think are the right things to do. Sure. Irrespective of what we tell them to. But what, how, how are we assessing what they think is the right thing? They're going to tell you. They're like, so, so, you know, I present the diet to someone or whatever it might be, and they're going to go, you know, it's like giving someone a diet. I give someone a diet, you know, let's say you know, a prescriptive diet, which you can't do and you wouldn't really want to do. But let's say you give someone a prescriptive diet, which tells you how much food, when, where, whatever it might be. The client turns around to you and says, how long do I have to do that for? Straight away, they've just told you it's wrong. So, so whereas if I've got the complete buy-in, if I said, Ben, I want you to coach me, you write me a prescriptive diet, give it to me, I'm not even going to dare say that. I'm just going to get on with it. Well, all, you came to me for a different reason. Correct, but I've came to you with the buy. The buying is already initiated, so you can sure. you can get away as a coach with getting someone to reduce their blue light exposure, get them to turn off their devices in the evening. A, a 17, 18, 19 year old person, irrespective of who, the buy-in, though, I think every everyone should. I agree that the buy-in is a very important aspect, but we should all aim to achieve buy-in as a coach, right? Whatever that looks like. If that means like, hey, I'm going to, so I, I talk to all my coaches about this stuff. It's like, guys, in those first few sessions with a client, you need to own the conversation. You need to assess or, or create a dominant situation where most of these people are coming in to work with the coach typically are very successful. They have maybe yeah. more dominant personalities. So as a coach, you have to own that relationship. So you need to create the buy. You need to create the dominance in that in that relationship so surely, that you have the buy But surely the buy-in has to revolve around what they want from their session. Of so, course, so yeah. this is, or what, from the, from the relationship. Uh, but straight away, you're giving me things that I didn't want, and I don't associate. What, what did but you I don't, want? But I don't associate. I didn't come to you to improve my sleep. I came to you to lose weight. Right. I'd love to improve my sleep, don't get me wrong, but in my hierarchy of list of things is, number one, I want to lose weight. I right. want to get on a scale and, and what I if I, What if I just tell you, or what if we say, hey, in order, so here's an example. If someone comes to me and says, comes to you and says, Phil, I want to put on 30 pounds of muscle or 20 yeah, kilos yeah. of muscle. Okay, we're going to go in the gym and fucking smash you through the wall today. Yeah. Is that what you're going to do? No. For, for, for someone who comes in who's, you know, maybe not trained all that much, you're not going to go, hey, I'm just going to smash you so, through the wall so today. So we're talking progressive overload, you have right? To, well, no, you have to lay a foundation for their yeah, ability to do overload. things. We're going to go, look, what can you do now? And this is where we're going to go in the future. 
and this is this is when we talk about diet. What's diet? It's progressive underload in many respects. Is that I've got to look at what somebody currently does well, and go. And, I'm not even talking about progressive overload. I'm talking about someone comes to you who, who's not an experienced lifter and they say, Phil, I want to put on 20, 30 kilos. Yeah. You can't just go into like, all right, Bob, we're going to kick your ass and work as hard as you can. You're like, I need to see what you're capable of doing now. And then I'm going to teach you these foundational skills that you don't have yet. And then we can go and put on muscle. Yeah. So that's what we're doing with nutrition. We're going, hey, man, I know you want to lose weight. But before you lose weight, I need to increase movement. I need to increase your, your brain's ability to uh, not be stressed. And this, and this goes back to this goes back to dealing with coaches who are inexperienced, who are young, who don't have that level of buy-in, who are working a big box gym or whatever it might be. I think be. we're just looking at the same thing from two different sides of, of course the coin. We are. You're looking at it from like these you're young coaches who don't have buy-in. You're an experienced coach who, who, who already has the buy-in. So therefore, these kind of strategies are very easy for you to implement because people go away and do them. Uh, so you know, it's very difficult for an inexperienced, you know, novice coach, brand new coach. And there are things that I do with my clients and did with my clients. I would never convey to anybody else. I would never convey to most of the coaches that I ever teach because it won't work for them because their demographic and their client don't trust them in the same way that mine we, trusted we me. We both absolutely agree that the first step in any relationship, in any relationship is trust, rapport, and quote-unquote buy-in, right? Yeah. Like you have to create trust and rapport. And no matter what it is, either it's happening before the relationship begins or it's happening as soon as the relationship begins. Yeah. So that needs to precede everything, I think. So if your approach to, to getting someone to buy in is to get them to lose a few kilos in the first couple of days because you're decreasing the calories. And, and this is this argument about, you know, uh, extreme dieting, right? We know, and this is the, you know, we look at the studies, some of the studies heavily support this, is that if for the first few weeks of dealing with somebody, you drop their calories excessively. So I'm going to put you on a thousand calorie day diet for the next two weeks. If you've got somebody who sticks that out, their compliance goes up. Sure. Because they lost weight. Yep. Rapidly. Now, the buy-in is to do with the weight loss, which is what they came to you for. But this is, again, I've seen coaches throughout my career where they have a thing that they do, whatever it might be. You know, I remember the, all the Paul Check stuff, you know, things like that, where what would happen is that somebody would come in for weight loss and then all of a sudden that person is doing a bunch of functional coaching, training for them for the wrong goal, the goal that they didn't actually want to because the coach is that way oriented. I remember a, a girl I used to work with who used to put all her clients, she used to teach them how to do clean and jerks and snatches and blah, 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 because she was an Olympic lifter. But that wasn't what they came to you for. Right. They didn't come to you to learn how to do these complex lifts. They came right. to you to move. Transform their body. Yeah. Transform their body. So so what we've done is we've now straight away moved the goalpost away from where they are. This is where we see coaches. And, and this, again, in my experience of dealing with coaches from a coaching perspective, is that you see these coaches move the goalpost and then start to create these brand new mantles of what is success. So you'll take a coach who's got a weight loss client and they're not very good at achieving their weight loss and the buy-in and the compliance and everything that we need to do to achieve weight loss. They're not getting that. So what they start doing is they start working on the client doing a pull-up or they start to work on the client doing a max trap bar deadlift. Right. And, you know, that's their achievement. So that you see these trainers high-fiving the client as they've totally ruined the back doing some 200 kilo trap bar deadlift. And because the client's not achieving the goals that they actually came in for, you're giving these, these, these new mantles to prove to them that, yes, we're progressing because your trap bar deadlift's gone up, but they want a weight loss. So we've moved the goalposts away from what they wanted to achieve. Right. So let's talk uh, about that. So I think it's important when you begin any relationship to establish a target, to establish a goal. 
which then allows you to establish buy-in, right? Because if I know your goal, I know how to direct my buy-in. I know how to to target like, hey, I'm going to get you. So maybe that's kind of where this semantically is going off is if someone has a a very specific goal, we could approach it in many different ways to get you to that goal. But either one of them ultimately needs to, or any one of them ultimately needs to get to one step closer to this target rather than, you know, some lateral step away from the target. I think that's what what the semantics of this conversation needs to come over with. You know, but my... My point to you is it comes back to probably the biggest point really is it comes back to that level of buy-in that you have already got as a coach and a person. Sure. Is well, let's the, talk about that then. Like how, how does, how, how in your in your eyes does a client or a trainer establish buy-in? Is it exclusively through nutrition, right? No, is, no, no, no. So, okay, let's, let's, let's give some buy-in, trainers some... Buy-in, some buy-in uh, starts with a coach. Okay, well, let's give some some trainers, some tact or, or coaches, whomever's listening, to some tactical approaches to actually getting a greater degree of buy-in from their client. Right. So, again, consistency. Right. So, as a coach, and and I hate to hinge on this sometimes, but ultimately it comes down to results. Right. So you start getting results with clients, you start to get a bigger buy-in. Yeah. For sure. So, so you know, the 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 more trust you uh, achieve from other clients, the bigger buy-in you get. So, the problem that we've got is that with a brand new PT in the industry, and this is who I'm largely dealing with in the academy, is that these guys have no experience, they have no track record, they have no background of fame, fortune, they have no, they're not celebrities, not this, that, so. The client is coming to that person and all they see is this jumped up little kid who's got a PT qualification. That's all they see. So we've got to then angle that buy-in and we've got to angle that trust being developed over time, which is what's going to happen. And this is all about the PT consistently delivering a level of service that the client expects in a professional manner. So everything right now, you even talk about just professionalism, right? You know, is, is professionalism. A level and a degree of professionalism portrayed by a personal trainer will get you a higher buy-in than anything else in the onset because you are conducting yourself in a in a way that is 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 what a client would expect. Now if you're gonna come in wearing, you know, shabby clothes, you're not very well presented, you're gonna you know, you're gonna struggle more with that buy-in. So the buy-in starts with the trainer. It starts with a whole bunch of things. It's do you shake your client's hand as they walk through the door? Or just go, hi, come on, we're training. You know, how do you approach that whole thing? Is there a, a demeanor, a manner to it? Is there a, and we add that in. Then we've got, how well does the client know you? Are you going to introduce yourself to them? Are you going to tell them a little bit about your background, a bit about yourself, a bit about what, you know, or have they been following you, for example, on social media for a long time and they've already bought into you because they've never met you before, but they like what you do. You know, and this is again. You look at your, your, your kind of the online aspects of your business. What are you ultimately trying to do with people? Just trying to nurture them to the point that they trust you completely, emphatically, to the point that they will probably, in the end, buy your product or whatever it is that you're selling. You know, I don't expect a trainer just to go, "Oh, I'm going to go with the academy." I expect them to enjoy what we deliver and what we uh, the results we get for people. People talking about us, word of mouth, over delivery, all those different things, and and that then ultimately creates that buy-in. So. It starts with a coach and it starts with them presenting themselves probably in a way that is unexpected, especially for a young kid, is acting professional, acting in a way that uh, that 40-year-old person that you're dealing with starts to create some kind of connection with you. You know, and then that's going to be dealt with all the time. The rest of it is probably going to come across from initially getting results with your clients. You know, and for a lot of clients, 
this is my kind of argument, is that for a lot of clients, that is just weight loss. It's weight on a scale. You know, whatever way you do it. You look at the buy-in on low-carb diets. What's the buy-in on a low-carb diet? You drop your carbs out your diet and lose weight rapidly. You know, not really because you're losing fat. You just lose weight rapidly. So the buy-in straight away is, right. the, is the weight loss. So talk to me about that. So talk to me about ketogenic diets um, and your approach or your belief around this low carb, high fat trend versus simply calories in and calories out. I'd love for you to go down Same that path. Thing. It's a sustainable thing, right? Reality is, is that, you know, actually when we were in Tampa, you know, when I was out in Tampa with you, yep. is that, you know, the, the guy that was speaking was a, a big person in the field of ketogenic dieting. And the reality is that the vast majority of people aren't going to embrace ketogenic dieting as a lifestyle choice. They're not going to do it forever. Now, with respect to getting results quickly for a lot of people, yeah, there's massive support for large elements of it. It's, you know, it's hugely protein sparing. It's great with certain conditions. People are going to buy into it very, very rapidly because you get rapid weight loss. You know, it's from an energetic perspective for a lot of people. It removes foods that will typically make them feel sluggish, might cause them to overeat because of the satiety levels of protein. For a lot of people, it helps them organize and reorganize their diet. With respect to it being a long-term dietary strategy, I think it's it's not going to work for many people. With respect to getting the ball rolling with a lot of people, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great tool if it's used in the right context. Uh, you know, you've... Similar sort of thing. You've got to have that buy-in, but you've got to have somebody to have that desire to eat in that fashion. I ketogenic dieting for me, easy. Yeah, it's not a problem. You know, because I love eating meat, I love fats, I love, you know, I like that approach. It's it's not an issue to me. But Joe Public out there who is probably going to remove a lot of foods that they like to indulge in. It's a bit like a competition diet, right? You know. You get these competitors that are either good with it or they're bad with it, right? Where they develop almost like a disordered eating pattern off the back of contest diet. Right? Yeah. I think everybody does, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But some are extreme, yeah. you know, to yeah. to the point that people are listing foods they're gonna overconsume on and overindulge in the day the the second they step up stage. You yeah. know, they've got a box of donuts ready to go and they will Creating smash the list. that. Right. Yeah. And and that's the patterns that we've almost got to watch out for, especially with something, again, like ketogenic dieting, because right. there's going to be a point where they stop doing it. I'm concerned about what happens when they Absolutely. stop. Now, you're a very um, well-read, well-researched uh, trainer and also kind of have become a very uh, renowned nutritionist. Which do you prefer teaching? Business. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm, I'm, if there was one element of what I teach now that I would love and, and continue to is business because I think there's so many elements of business that overlap into what we do as coaches and, and sure. on the gym floor and what we do from a nutritional standpoint. It's funny how that evolves, right? It's the same thing for me. It's like massive. I love training. Yeah, got that figured out now. Like, oh, okay with nutrition. Now businesses, just this new frontier. I think that's always the growth mindset. Because so many of the, I think so many of the aspects that you apply to business apply so much to somebody's nutrition and somebody's, you know, where where the outcome of the things that we consistently do and the things that consistently, you consistently do in business create the outcome that we ultimately want, which is a better quality life for us and the people that surround us. And, you know, I talk about quality of life an awful lot and I talk about this in nutrition and I talked about in, in training is that, Something like powerlifting, you know, I was powerlifter for many years and 
ultimately when I look at the quality of life that powerlifting for 20 years is going to create me, it's going to be pretty horrendous. The outcome is probably not going to be good. You know, I'm going to be in a position where I am going to cause myself problems. You know, and there's a lot of powerlifters now that are openly talking about this. The guys from Elite, uh, the guys from, you know, West Side, a lot of them are talking about the fact that what they did for 20 or 30 years has now damaged them in a way that their quality of life is diminishing fairly rapidly. So I'm always looking at that as I want people to have a quality of life that they are chasing. And nutrition, it's the same sort of thing. And kind of what we've been touching on and talking about is that I don't want people to remove social context from what they do because social, the social aspect of somebody's life is a massive part of it. Being happy is a massive part of somebody's, somebody's life. And food, for a lot of people, plays a massive role in that. Now, if I make them very unhappy with what they eat, all of a sudden I've removed a large element of their life. If they're very introverted and they don't have huge social circles and blah, 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 hey, ketogenic dieting might work for you, you know? Right. It's easy to eat on the road, though. Like, that ketogenic diet, I make the argument it is. of, like, it's it so is. much easier yeah, to do than a, than it, a bodybuilding diet. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it has a basic set of rules. And yeah. those, you know, but it's very like, easy to find meat and fat. It's never easy to find a clean carbohydrate. And, and also it becomes a, a little bit problematic. I think in the U.S. it's a little bit easier to do that. To do a keto? Yeah. Here it's not so easy just to find decent sources of protein just on the hop. You know, it's not a, a bit more than usual, but it's certainly in the US, you know, when I I worked in the Bahamas for a long time and, and my my access to ketogenic foods was, was easy. So I did a keto diet whilst I was there. Mm-hmm. You know, I was there for like two months and I was like, well, keto, it's easy. Yep. You know, I can maintain this. It's it, And and at the time, a lot of the food that was presented to me was very indulgent, the sort of food. I love food. And I was like, my easiest way of avoiding this is just give myself a basic set of rules and follow them, which is what I did. Dude, I'm so glad you brought that up. Talk to me about that. So a basic set of rules. This is something that's you said in kind of passing and is so, so valuable that I suggest everyone do for themselves. Like a client comes to me and it's like, I let them dictate it, but I'll go, well, where are all your triggers and how do we create rules around that, right? Like an example would be if I say, Phil, I don't drink and we go to dinner, I don't drink is not the same as, well, I don't think I'm going to have one today, right? If you yeah, just, yeah. So if you set that basic set of rules, like I don't eat gluten, that's one rule for me. Okay, well, that's a very easy rule for you to apply to your life. Yeah. Talk I to me about I what you to... said is your rules, if there is some, and uh, how you suggest people begin that. I just want to, I want the rule to be there for the reason that they understand it to be there. So if we look at, for example, the gluten thing, right? Now, the gluten thing is, it's, it's it's not necessarily sketchy. I should say I don't eat gluten in North America, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it, it, let's do quality food then. Let's. Oh, maybe that's that's probably a wrong angle to go at. Anything that we eradicate, just anything in general, right? So basic rule of uh, I'm going to cut sugar out my diet, right? You apply that to any Western, they're going to lose weight. Right. But right. Yeah, but but they need to understand why they're losing weight. Why? They need to understand why that... Because it's just the calorie thing. Yeah, it's a calorie thing. In the onset, we know it's the calorie thing. Don't get me wrong. There's a whole bunch of other things that are going to happen, mm-hmm. right? But ultimately, that is the big pivotal thing. You apply the same rule to gluten. The biggest thing that they will do is they will change their food choices to foods that they're unfamiliar with. You do it in the UK. You know, you look at a typical Western diet. You go, right, I'm going to ban bread. Most Westerns, certainly in the UK, will eat a lot less food they don't know what to put things in right they're like all of a sudden they're stumped they're like right and and what happens is they'll lose weight and then they'll figure it out 
they'll work out what they can replace it with. Right. And when they work out what they can replace it with, they go back to what, eating what they were eating before. Absolutely. Because that's that regulation thing, right? right? So those basic set rules need to follow some kind of pattern, but we also need to, in my view, we also need to explain what those set rules are there for. You know, what I don't want is somebody going away and telling everybody that they're, you know, I have a massive gluten intolerance and I'm allergic and this, that, the other. No, 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 no. No, you lost weight because we changed your food choices. Now, if you have conditions and you have problems and you have issues with them and there's inflammatory, whatever it might be, I need to prove to them that that actually exists. Otherwise, I'm just speculating. I can assume, I can go, yeah, we take gluten out, your inflammatory markers. How much do you think gluten plays into the inflammatory markers that people have? I'm going to answer this in the way that I would typically answer it. I actually don't care at this stage. Because because for a lot of people, it becomes... It's an it's minutiate. It's an irrelevant kind of inflammation. Is irrelevant. It's not irrelevant, but it's it's in the grand scheme of the things that I'm concerned about. If I'm dealing with a professional athlete, I'm concerned. You know, because that inflammation is going to cause them problems. Sure. You know, so and overeating in of itself will yeah, cause inflammation. I'm, too. I'm therefore then concerned. Average person wandering around, blah blah blah. If gluten makes them feel like shit. I'm concerned. If gluten doesn't seem to make make them feel like shit, seem to. Because again, sure. how do we market this? You know, uh, am I bothered about it? No, I'm not that bothered about it. If there's a large frequency and volume of it in their diet, am I concerned about it? Yes. How much are you looking at um, blood markers when you're doing somebody's nutrition plan? Right. Again, I'm going to play devil's advocate with respect to the people that we deal with. The accessibility to bloods, what are we actually going to do once we've read them and we've interpreted them and we've done something with them? Is that the vast majority of coaches that I deal with from the academy's sure. perspective, they're never going to have access to Are you books. not doing any more clients yourself? No. It's all academy stuff. No. Yeah. No. So so the access to bloods and the availability and the scope of practice in which the vast majority so of coaches... so complex. Yeah. It's but, a 10-year course itself. And, and this is this is where, should I be coaching coaches to delve into those markets? No. Which I used to. Don't get me wrong. I yeah, used but to. you're a high level. I used to, but, yeah. but it's... Again, it became that thing where I've got a load of bloods back. Some things are wrong. Now, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Study it for the next five years. That, that's really <laughs> what it is. So, I, you know, for me, I look at ten to twelve markers, and like these are my kind of prime movers that indicate something for me. And if some, if they're way skewed, especially in combination, then I'm going to start to dig deeper, right? So, let me go back to your clients. But how much would your clients pay for a set of blood tests? I don't know. I don't ask. Right, but, just, the, but again, this is the, when we talked about the buy-in before. Sure. Problem we got with a seventeen-year-old coach is that oh, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, a coach saying... who charges twenty-five pound an hour isn't then going to send the client off and go, "You're going to spend two hundred pound and sure, get a I'm blood test." That, 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 that a trainer needs to do that. I'm yeah. just saying, you in general, of course, as yeah. a coach. Yeah. So, so my answer was based on that premise that the vast majority of coaches aren't good. That's why I think it's irrelevant. Yeah, it's way too complex. It's irrelevant because yeah. there's nothing we can. But do But in about my world, it. I'm not looking at. 17 year old or 25 or 30 year old coaches oh, i'm looking at like performance optimization at the highest level right like how does what, what does it look like to be optimized that's what i'm looking like so if phil comes and to me and says ben it, i want to live to be a yeah, thousand and, and if i've got somebody if i've got somebody at that level i'm there i'm outsourcing in a ridiculous fashion yeah i've got physios i've got practitioners i've got blood people i've got medical teams i've right. got the works i've got everybody you know where you know, I did a performance thing with a, an elite rugby player, and, and we he actually stayed with me, and we had a we had a mattress built for him 
which wicked sweat and you know kept his body temperature at certain levels we had you know there was no all the electrics to the room were turned off there was no electrics anything allowed in the room he was you know it, the blue light thing wasn't an issue because he wasn't anywhere near devices from like 6 p.m onwards you know he slept in a tent in a hypoxic tent you know we did the and we're talking this is nearly 15 years ago now right. we did everything that could optimize performance because what we did the whole experiment was and it actually got pulled short by the club the club weren't comfortable with it because it was being heavily publicized online and blah 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 so they were like hold on well now every trainer every player we've got is going to ask to do this and the project was was to take this guy in his off season which is very very short and get all the things that the coaches would want so you take an NFL player off season and they, you know, they have, I don't know what an NFL off season looks like, but let's say they've got six weeks, right? Coach turns around to the trainer and goes, I want them to be X amount of pounds heavier. I want them to be X amount faster. I want them to be X amount leaner. I want them. Th-. And then you're like, as a coach going, whoa, you know, so which one do I do first? So what we did is we took all those things that he wanted from his player. And we took this really short off season, which I think we had about 10 weeks. And I said, I'm going to use every tool that we've got. You know, he would sleep in compression garments. We had these compression garments built from him. Uh, BSC did them. Yeah. Uh, and then we had all this stuff. We had access to blood tests. He was getting saliva testing every day. We did the works with him. And the progress on him was incredible. And after four weeks, the club rang us up, the head coach at the club, and said, I want my player back. And his only rationale was, you know, I just want him back. That was it. He was. I want him back. I don't want him doing this anymore. And all we and we'd put tens of thousands of pounds into this. We had sponsors. We had everything, and it was this massive project. And that was optimizing human performance. But that's the stuff I'm interested in. Yeah, but so am I. And I've always been interested in. But the fact is, is the vast majority of my clientele, I have a fraction of a percent, uh, are going to be the 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 ninety nine percent of people that people are dealing with in and uh, gluten blue lights you know weeds you know blood markers blah 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 for the vast majority of them it's not that they're not accessible and they're not useful but in the grand scheme of where they are now is it going to make that much difference at this particular moment right are you concerned with someone's environment impacting the way their body utilizes food not really no environment uh, expand on what you well, mean everything. by environment. So everything from your that's light a, exposure to your, Yeah, yeah. So everything from light to being outside to breathing air to breathing toxins yeah. and pollutants to, um, yeah, literally all the things. Yeah, right. all the so, things so I'm going to look at the things that I can change and the things I can't change. Right, so breathing pollutants. Somebody in central London, works in central London. You're, yeah. Can't change it. You know, I could look at ways of minimizing it, but then is that going to put them into a level of... Uh, being socially awkward or uncomfortable or whatever it might be. You know, it's a bit like, uh, you know, you wear the glasses, right? The blue light glasses. But wear them fairly permanently, right? You wear them a lot. Uh, only after 6 p.m.? Yeah. If I'm if I'm going out driving or Maybe something. Maybe it's because the vids, I've, I've seen you in like your vids and stuff on social media. And, right. and it, obviously I have no perception of what time you film right. that. So, so somebody wearing them, right? You wear them because you're comfortable wearing them. Now, no, because I'm more concerned about my life and what somebody course, else gives. Yeah, yeah, but but you take the average person wandering around. It's like carrying your food around. Let's go carrying your food. Easy one. So I'm going to get you to carry your food around in Tupperware in a cool bag, and you're going to carry it around with you all day, every day. The issue isn't that they don't want to do it. The issue isn't that they can't do it. The issue is that they do not feel they feel socially awkward How doing it. Terrible is that though. 
But it's not about being terrible. It's about that fact that that person feels uncomfortable all the time. It's a bit like, you know, opening your food on a piece of public transport, right? Everybody's, Rather, so everybody's comfortable unwrapping the, a McDonald's. Well, right? that's the exact conversation that I was going to. It's like, why is it socially acceptable? It just and, is. It is. Yeah, but it, but shouldn't is, someone then who cares about their life and their body be confident enough to embrace and say, yes, I but am we're eating. Not, but we're not dealing with people who are confident. We're not, but why can't we have that conversation with them and, but we're not, and let we're them not, open up their eyes and we're say, not dealing hey. with people who are confident. We had this, you know, chat before is that, you know, I, there are certain things that, you know, there's people in my life that I would love to be able to just let them get in my head just for a minute and realize what I see of them, how confident I am in them, like business. When I deal with people in business, I have more faith in them than they have in themselves. Right. I'm like, I just look at them and I go, that is just gross potential. They are like, you know, they're negative Nigel. They're like, Nah, not so much, not so much. And I want to give them a shake. But ultimately, people aren't like that. And what we're going to remember is that people aren't like us. People aren't like, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation if people but were I, like I don't us agree with accepting someone's uh, poor reflection or, or poor interpretation of himself. Like, I think no, as, a, as a coach, it's our I, job to... I'm so. talking about degree of making somebody uncomfortable. Right? So... Right. But why shouldn't, all, why shouldn't I, as a coach, be... Confident enough in my abilities to say, hey, you need to be confident enough in yourself to sit down at a table somewhere. And I'm not saying like hey, you're going to have dinner it's, or you're going to a wedding or something like right. that, like different. Like, but if you're going and, and you're sitting in your lunchroom, why the hell wouldn't you take out your tub? Yeah, right. So because it may it's a socially awkward thing. It's awkward for them. Great. Is that it's making that person stand out like a sore thumb. Good. If you've got some but if you've got somebody who's massively overweight, right. they don't Good. want to draw attention to that because they failed at that they multiple stand. But they need it. They, they need do. accountability. They do, and I like that. And and totally, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. But in reality, the fact is, is that person that you've just made that person feel to, to, uncomfortable on a daily basis in multiples of scenarios. Good. Which now, yeah, great, but is that going to cause them to crumble? And is it going to cause them to stop doing what they're doing because they're Or like, get strong enough to actually change. Yeah, but that's, it's, it's, it's a pipe dream. I don't, I don't agree. I, I genuinely I think, think the only, I think the only way to make somebody change is to make them uncomfortable enough to uncomfortable, change. Yeah. Like if you're, if you're I, I 50 agree, pounds totally. overweight, take your fucking shirt off. Yeah. Walk outside. Right, Get yeah. I mean, it's the only way, yeah, man. But it's, but it's, but that doesn't work for really like what we talked about before. Is that I can tell you that you can't do something, you'll go and prove me wrong. It's that same kind of mentality. Is that what we've got to remember? Is the vast majority of people that we deal with, and and I talked about this yesterday about coaches, is that they come from a point of insecurity. They come from a point of being un. They're, they're not confident about themselves. They're they're insecure. They're they they feel socially awkward. They feel socially inept. They, but as long as you they, live inside this bubble of insecurity, you can never change. Of course, but we're not going to change that. Over overnight by forcing someone to do something. But the only way to change it's, it's almost like a, with pain. Yeah, but it's almost like a military approach. Is that I'm not going to get, you know, I could get somebody who's massively aware and say, right, take your shit off, walk around Mayfair. And those are the people that will change. 95% of the population what about will the never people change. Who, what about the people who aren't willing to do that right now because they're not confident in themselves? Do it anyways. And then what? We'll and break them because yeah, what they're going to do is going to walk around Mayfair, and people are going to point, and people are going to te- torment them, and people are going to tease them, and then they're going to be like, and then this when they the see same, them in three this months, is the same shit that I dealt with when I was ten years old, and now now you've just put me right in front of the fire line again, and it didn't work then. It didn't work. Man. It didn't work when I walked around at school and people tormented me and teased me and blah blah blah, and and that same mentality where you go, yeah, they need that, yeah, they might, but that will break some people. It will break some, people. and it will make other right. people. But it'll also make them stronger. Well, it doesn't always work like that. 
I believe it does. I think it, I think I mean, that, I it's think the type will... of thing where it's either going to drive them into a, a deep depression yes. or it's the only thing strong enough to make them change. And I'm not and, and, and I'm not prepared to say that risk with a lot of people where I'm sure. like, I'm not going to put you in a position where you I compound failure because otherwise otherwise all the diet diet stuff and the nutrition stuff we've been talking about is completely futile because we're talking about behaviors we're talking about habits i might as well just tell people exactly what the equation is that they need to do i'm going to say you go away and do that because you need pain i'm going to give you a bodybuilding diet i'm going to send you away with the bodybuilding diet i'm going to tell you you need to go to the gym five times a week and you need to spend an hour in the gym at a time and you need to do don't agree with that i think i think they need some type of but are we not talking talking about the same thing we're talking about the level of uncomfortable i'm prepared that doesn't necessarily mean that i need to Go I, eat and eat a bodybuilding diet and train five times a week. No, but I can. It make, just means I need to be disturbed enough to take continuous I, I action. I know, I know that I could make you feel unbelievably uncomfortable before I break you. But I know with Dave over there that I make him feel slightly out of that box of comfortableness he's in. But maybe he's going to break. Maybe, maybe, or maybe you give him just enough going like, "Holy shit! I can't believe I just did that." I'm going to do that again. But that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm getting at. Is that is that I need to put them to a point where they still achieve and they still accomplish. I think and it, they still and then they still get what they want out of it. But at the end of the day, they still succeed. I think it's the same scenario as as you just said with a diet. If you put someone on a massive caloric de- uh, deficit for a few weeks and they de- get a whole bunch of weight loss, rather than putting them in a small deficit, it's the same scenario, right? It's like, if I just throw you in the deep end and I go, hey man, we're gonna do something that makes you very uncomfortable. And again, uh, one example, like putting someone out in the public with their shirt off is obviously just a ridiculous extreme yeah, yeah, example, yeah. but like making them do something that allows them to experience pain is the only way to experience change, I, or, or the fastest way to get change. And and you notice, and you, I'm, I'm confident you'll agree in this, is 95% of people fail at this journey, or they succeed and then revert back because they don't have enough behavior change or enough cause, psychological cause, cause. desire this, to change. But this is this, this degree of uncomfortable. If I make someone exceptionally uncomfortable, they're not going to sustain it because we're asking them to change behaviors in a polar way. We're going, right, you're, Dave, you're going to take that pizza that you ate on a Friday night and now you're going, to eat, you're going to eat chicken and salad with no dressing on it. That is too much. No, that's much. not the same. That's not Why? the same. Because it's a, it's a that, that's a physiological response rather than a psychological response. A physiological response no, it's says a, it's a psychological response. No, if I put you in a caloric deficit of a thousand calories a day, let's look that's at psych- not a psychological no, let's response. Look, let's look at psychologically what. Let's look at what Dave wants from the pizza. It's not calories. He wants to to mute his stress. No, that's it's a not, physiological he response. Want to mute stress. Doesn't want to mute your stress. Dave wants to eat the pizza because he's in a social environment with a bunch of his friends. He wants taste. He wants texture, and he wants to enjoy it. And I've just removed all of that psychological aspect of that food from him. He wants to enjoy his food, which is psychological, right? It's not physiological. There is a physiological edge to it, but we know, we I, know I that, that, that somebody I, who's obese... I think, I think you're actually... We know that somebody obese is their dopamine response is muted, right? So he's chasing his tail. Yeah, but he's... No, but he's still blunting a cortisol response. Yeah, but he's still, but he's still chasing that, his tail because he's still never going to get the gratification from that pizza that he used to because he's overweight. Yes, he will. 
Because why? Because they're they're so inflamed and, and so cortisol driven that we'll give them a serotonin response to block the cortisol, right? Right. So I give them the chicken salad. What does Dave wake up on a? So Dave wakes up on Saturday morning. He's eating the chicken salad the night before. All but of that's his mates, a different response. All of his mates tore, tore the hell out, tore the hell out of him because he 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 made it very clear to them that he's trying to lose weight again. So Dave's had it ripped out of him. So he wakes up on Saturday morning with his mates still texting him, ribbing him about the fact, "Oh, you're still trying to lose weight, Dave. You're still eating the the chicken salad and drinking water." and blah 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 now Dave's contended with all of that now what does what has Dave got out of it Dave isn't waking up going oh my god I feel less inflamed if I give him the same number of calories from a healthy food right so I'm not talking about putting him in a caloric deficit give him a chicken salad it's a different scenario yeah right yeah anyways we're going we're going down a path of, of semantics here um, yeah but but my point is is that there's more to food than just calories I, Which is I what you're telling me. But I believe the physiological uh, habituation of these things happens from your young age, from a young age, or whenever this habit begun. Did not go. Nobody goes. I want to go to pizza because it t-, like maybe when you're young, you go. I want pizza. Want to taste good. But it becomes this type of scenario as you as you age, where you're eating because it makes you feel. So when I eat, or when a human eats, it's either because I'm hungry, and this um, food will make this pain of hunger go away yeah, yeah, yeah. or i eat because i have some other physiological feeling in my body and the feeling that i get from food is a, is a net positive result than the negative feeling i had before so if i'm eating to uh if i'm eating because i'm binge eating or because I, I have a bad habit of eating it's because i'm getting a net positive change in my physiological state in that second so if i have a, a, a beer right there, there is a habituation that happens that I learned to like the taste of the beer. But when nobody starts drinking beer because they like the taste of it, they like it because of yeah. the state change that happens. And they become addicted to the state change, which then leads to a habituation around the flavor. Oh, I actually like this. So I associate this this taste in my mouth yeah. with this better feeling that I get than I had before. So I come into this room and we, you and I sit down and I have this slight level of anxiety. I don't really feel really good. I have one beer or one piece of pizza and all of a sudden my body feels just, feels just a little bit better. It's an unconscious feeling. I don't even realize it's happening, but I feel feel a little bit better and then if i have another pizza pizza oh i feel even a little bit better so i have a net positive physiological state change of course but but then so but then you're counting the what, argument that you had before where you're saying look i'm eating a beer and a pizza and it's making me feel good now is that feel- but, but why is it happening it's the the feel good is the, is the net blunting of the stress but what about the taste? So the taste has no impact. Apart from I the think the test has, the taste is only impactful because you're associating it with blunting the stress. So if we created a different food choice that was blunting the stress. So if I gave you a food that you didn't like, but it will still blunt the stress. Why don't you like it? So if, But if, it's still going to blunt the stress though. We but, know that but, physiologically. But why don't you like it is the question. So Because the taste. No. It's, it's an association you have from the past. So if I give you when you're four, six, and eight years old, a food that blunts your stress or, or a, an internal coping mechanism that blunts your stress, I can get you addicted to that internal coping mechanism because it's the, the, how you learn to cope with stress. Right? So I have coping mechanisms. It's internal, it's external. So external being alcohol and food and drugs and sex. Those are yeah, external yeah. coping mechanisms. An internal coping ne- mechanism, let's say breathing or, or reflection or meditation or love. Right. So if I give you... Uh, a positive internal coping mechanism or an external coping mechanism when you're young, that's a positive one. You can learn to, to associate that with the state change. And thereby, when you get older, that's your positive state change mechanism rather than... So when you're a kid and you're, you're acting about and your parents are pissed off at you, what do they do? They put you in front of the TV or they give you bullshit food. They go, here, eat this lollipop. It'll make you shut up. 
and then all of a sudden you're associating sugar with changing the state right. change. And, and, and then is, as you get, it, yeah. get down the path, now I'm 40 years old and all of a sudden I, I'm craving sugar when I want a state so, change. So is the, is the solution to this then, in, instead of rewarding, Stopping the stress. rewarding kids with shit food, we reward them with good food? But well, not, it's not it. a reward. So parents are trying to just tell, like if a kid's acting about and they're, they're being a little bit. But if, but if I said to you, look, look, Ben, if you, you achieve this, you know, a little, little, little young 10-year-old Ben, and I'm saying, look, Ben, if you achieve this, I'm going to give you a bag of sweets, right? What happens if I say, if you achieve this, Ben, I'm going to give you a bag of broccoli? We remove the association with the outcome. So, so I'm saying to you, your reward is vegetables. And then every time you want some vegetables, I'm going to tell you no. So now we're starting to play on almost like reverse psychology, right? Yeah. Where I'm saying, no, you're not allowed that, so therefore you want it. You're like, why Why can't I have that? Right. And this is why people try, yeah. try drugs and sure. you know whatever it might be because they're not allowed to. There's a taboo element to it. There's an aspect of you're not allowed to. You know, you you see it around London. You, you have a wall with a sign which says no graffiti, covering graffiti. The wall next to it, there's no sign on it. There's no graffiti on it either. Keep off the grass. People walk on the grass because they're curious. They're like, why does right. it say keep off the grass? I'm so put a sign says walk on the grass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's that reverse psychology aspect to it. So then all of a sudden now we're going, are these behavior? And we're getting into massive, complex, you know, huge behavioral, psychological sure. depths here That's that fun. we're talking about. Yeah, of course. It's, it's epic. But, it's, but we're talking about scenarios where you could actually just flip them completely on the head and go the other way and say, you're saying that, that, the only reason I eat the pizza is because of an association that I have with the pizza. But I can eat a food that I've never consumed ever before and still feel great after it. But I have no association. Well, because of because of the the what, as you said earlier, it's the salt, the sugar, and the fat. It's yeah. the mouthfeel that will create that blunting of the response. Either you're going to blunt ghrelin or you're going to blunt cortisol, right? Both. Yeah. So, But also, I could also leave that food without... You know, it's like the, the the sweet thing, right? Where people consume a savory food and then their association is that after the savory food, they have to have something sweet to finish the meal with. Yeah. And that becomes a pattern of behavior, right? Yeah. It becomes a pattern of behavior. It's not a requirement. It's not a physiological requirement. But is it a psychological, uh, you know, requirement? Or is it a... Because at that point, everything's been blunted. So we know that the... the, the so now all of a sudden, it just becomes a behavioral thing. It's just a behavioral pattern because you don't need any more calories. Your glycogen level's cool. Your ghrelin's cool. Everything's happy. Cortisol, blah, blah, blah. Everything's cool, but you're still going to eat it. Right. Why? Because you love the taste of it. Or is it the sugars and fats you're chasing again? But you've just had a load of sugars and fats. Or in is it because of. you're in a caloric deficit from you know, knocking down calories? Are you? But if you look at the patterns of people who overeat, they overeat for a multitude of reasons. But in amongst that, there isn't this thing that regulates and goes, stop eating. Which then we start to right. get into a whole so lot of resistance. Yeah, so leptin resistance, but also the fact that, you know, again, we talk about the dopamine response, right? You know, we know the D2 receptors down regular, obesity, blah, blah, blah. Now, that person who used to get that gratification from a Haribo now has to eat an entire pack to get the same kind of satisfaction. But then eventually, that's they're chasing the tail. It's like drug addiction, right? You know, I hate to put them into the same kind of box because they're totally different things in many respects. But what happens with drugs is that people try to they need more of the same thing to get the same outcome because receptors downregulate. Mm -hmm. So when we start to get into receptor downregulation, now all of a sudden we've got this obese person who has a higher response to the smell of food. So we know that as well. We know that the, they smell food. Their desire to consume that food is way higher than somebody who's lean, right? So we've got that. So they're contending with that. Not only are they contending with that, but also their obese, which means their dopamine response is downregulated, which means they need more food to get the same kind of satisfaction from a 
you know, uh, physiological perspective, psychological perspective, kind of crossover, right? But then we've also got the fact they're obese, which means that if they're obese, chances are they've probably got a decent level of insulin resistance. If they've got a decent level of insulin resistance, again, don't want to get into too much detail here, but if they get into a decent level of insulin resistance, we know their peripheral circulation is damaged. If their peripheral circulation is damaged, chances are if they're a man, there's going to be dysfunction where they shouldn't be, which means that there's no, they get no gratification from sex. Their desire, again, maybe from a Neolithic perspective or however you want to look at it, but their desire to uh, procreate or they've got, you know, their desire for chasing, you know, people of the opposite sex or the same sex or whatever they, their desire is, that's muted. We know that because their sexual drive is way lower than it should be. Their testosterone levels are low, their estrogen levels are high. You know, we've got this myriad of things. Now, all of a sudden, we've got an obese person who really, the grand factor is, is that obesity has caused all this. You know, so for me, I'm looking at what is the thing that we need to reverse the fastest to get the best outcome? What's going to bring the testosterone levels back up? Probably weight training and losing weight. Forget everything else, fancy supplements, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, uh, apart from, you know, outside the box. But we've got all these different things that are going to be, they're going to get more satisfaction from food if they lose weight. They're going to get a better response from food if they lose weight. They're going to get better ghrelin response. Their insulin is going to be managed better. They're going to get better peripheral circulation. Now, all of a sudden, they've got all these things that they get some satisfaction and pleasure from. We're talking about big obese populations here. Is that they're not getting they're not getting pleasure from anything apart from food, and we know that pleasure response from food is being muted. So when I look at the population that the vast majority of coaches are going to be dealing with, what is the first thing that this person needs to achieve? In my view, beyond anything else, it's weight loss. Sure, and absolutely. And so back at that initial thing. And however we instigate that, whether it's through you know, sleep improvement, whatever it is that we're doing to achieve that, as long as we're accomplishing it. But again, going back on kind of what you were saying is that my big argument for you is that you already have that buy-in. So you can use these more advanced techniques or these methods that are a little bit outside the box and a little bit where people are going, whoa, 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 whoa. you telling me to turn off my devices at 6 o'clock, I'm going to achieve weight loss. And that's the instant reaction they're going to get. Whereas for you, you can tell them to do that and they'll go, I trust you. Right. Or if I just have an explanation as to why. Yeah, but it has to be a pretty damn good explanation if they don't know who you are. Right. So the 17-year-old kid's going to need some whopping sure. great Well, I, w- I would belting. hope they wouldn't give a suggestion without yeah, a good understanding. They're, they're going to have to you know, have a belting reason yeah. and rationale, and, and it, it can't sound too out there, because if it does sound too out there, the person's not going to do it. So it's, it's that different level of who is the coach, where are the coach, how established are they, what's their background, what's their buy-in level, what's their this, that, the other. And ultimately, when we look at coaches, coaches are expected to give people caloric reductions. They're expected to get people moving more. So those are the two things that we're always going to focus on. And it's certainly from my perspective of coaching coaches, that's always the two things that I'm going to focus on because of that fact. Now, if I went back into the coaching environment, they're not the two things I'm going to focus on because I'm a respected coach and people know who I am and people will trust me. I'm going to approach it from a completely different angle, probably every time with a different person in a different way right? because of that. But I'm going to do that because of my experience. Whereas if I take, you know, general trainer who's just qualified, might really your goal is to get people to burn more calories and get them to consume slightly less. That's really your ultimate goal. How you go about doing that, it doesn't really matter in many respects. But there are ways which may fail you 
but you're only going to know that through trial and error. So you could drop them onto a thousand calorie day diet for a couple of weeks, see how that works. Some people it work with, some people it won't. But what makes you a great coach is the fact you can assess it and go, that didn't work, and this is the reason why. And I understand why that didn't work. Go and on. you could do the, you know, the I'm going to reduce your device usage. Sure, you know, later some people it work. If it's a lever for somebody, right? If if they're not sleeping well, or if it's a bottleneck, I should say. Like if they're sleeping well, man, keep it. Like I don't care. You know, yeah. if you feel good in the morning, energy's good, fine. But like for most people, you know, that's not the case. Like I would, I would argue that that's a huge lever for people sleeping yeah. stress. And if we can address those, and and the, the blue light thing is an example. Just 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 to put you know my take on it is that you know the, I started using blue light glasses because I spend a lot of time in front of the screen and I use them all day. I don't use them just in the evening. Do you use red ones or or like just white or what are they? Yeah, just a slightly tinted blue slightly ones. Tinted, yeah. yeah, and I use them all day. Because what would happen with me is that if I sat at a computer between, you know, typically from 5 a.m. up to about 2 p.m., at that point, my eyes, I couldn't. Right. You need uh, to acknowledge so that the rest of your body is also acknowledging all that blue light. So trying to balance out the spectrums is important to you, right? Getting some infrared. And even, you know, the, the, the current stuff on like UV, sure. you know, and you blah, blah, just, blah. Just a higher degree of lumens, right? Like get yeah, outside yeah. and get some sunshine to balance yeah. out that spectrum because it is being interpreted by your mitochondria, yeah. which you know. Dude, that was awesome. And I'm so grateful for you, man. <laughs> Great to have you, brother. Thank you for some amazing conversations, some amazing uh, knowledge, and where can everybody find you and your academy? Uh, advancedcoachingacademy.com is our uh, education the website. The ACA. The ACA, yeah, the advancedcoachingacademy.com. Uh, you'll find me on Instagram. It's kind of my main platform now, which is at the PT coach. Uh, you'll find me there because that's what I do. You know, I coach PTs. Yeah. And uh, everywhere else, it's Phil Learney. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter under Phil Learney. You'll find me on Facebook under Phil Learney. So, so yeah. And if you didn't understand everything Phil was saying, we're going to put subtitles, subtitles on a YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is for the better. UK edition. Are we going to put subtitles for you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for tuning in to my conversation with Phil Learney. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and YouTube. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.